Smith. Welcome to another edition of the Trails Collective Live Show, where Ian first recaps the week's events and then previews some upcoming races. And then he goes long with a guest from his personal running history. In this episode, Alyssa Gadeski, Chris Roberts, and Michael DeVoba are fresh off their DNFs from this year's Barkley Marathons. Each made it around Frozen Head State Park one time before calling it quits. Though they did not complete what they set out to do, each has a different perspective on the race and how it might fit or not fit in a trail running season. I guess we'll have to see if they get the chance to try again next year. In the second part of the episode, Ian chats with Scott McGubry, who has over 20 years of trailblazing experience in the Seattle mountain scene. This episode is sponsored by Exoskin. Exoskin is the only seamless athletic apparel brand in the U.S. Their apparel is, made, is 100% made in the USA and uses patented materials to reduce friction and wick moisture. Exoskin apparel provides protection against chafing, blisters, hot spots, and odor. Every product comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. Wear it for up to 30 days, and if you're not completely satisfied, we'll give you a full refund. Use code TRAILSCOLLECTIVE, that's one word, for a discount on your next order. All right, now let's get into the episode of TC Live. All right, Trails Collective World, thank you for being with us for this week's edition of TC Live. Uh, this is episode airing March 16th, 2022, or whenever you might be catching it after the fact. Uh, it is streaming live on my own personal Facebook page, as well as the Trails Collective Facebook page and the Trails Collective YouTube site. Uh, if you are tuning in and want to drop any comments or questions into the feed tonight, uh, go over to the Trails Collective, either Facebook or YouTube channels, and drop the comments there, and we will try to catch them and uh, chime in on those. Or if you just want to comment with any others in the feed, uh, feel free to do so. And um, yeah, so let's get into it. It should be a full episode, uh, as always, tonight. I don't hesitate to go long or necessarily uh, clip it uh, if it feels like we can dig in with some people. Uh, and we have a full episode tonight if everybody is able to uh, make it on. Uh, so... Uh, what we have in the lineup, if the people uh, actually uh, end up making it on, uh, we have a, uh, well, I'll do an intro here in a minute, and then we'll see if a, an acquaintance, Steve Malin, um, is going to give a plug for uh, running for the Ukraine uh, fundraiser that he's com uh, got coming up, uh, doing one of my events, the Highland uh, uh, Trail race coming up here in May. And then Ashley uh, Gressock uh, here outside of Ithaca is with a few friends launching a, hopefully another Trail Sisters chapter. Uh, so if they're able to log on, I will uh, bring them through and they can uh, plug each of their events for a couple minutes. And then we are going to dig in a little bit to uh, Barkley. I guess at this point, uh, I think it was a week and a half ago, if my bearings are correct. And I am grateful to pick off some of the time, hopefully, of Alyssa Gadeski, uh, Chris Roberts and Michael DeBova, all who went down there with the uh, grand visions of what can be. Uh, but knowing that Barkley has a tendency to eat, eat its young, uh, as they say. Um, well, it, it did just that. Uh, so it'll be fun to dig into all of their experiences. Uh, incredibly uh, tough, uh, if I don't say as well, talented individuals uh, in our uh, Beast Coast region. And it'll be good to just dig in a bit there. All right. So uh, let's get into it. Uh, so 
Let's see what happened. Uh, Northeast trail scene, uh, still fairly quiet coming out of winter. I don't think there's a ton happening on the FK FKT field. Uh, we had a few people uh, join us as supporters on the Patreon front for the Trails Collective. Uh, so for those of you who don't already know, you can find your way over to uh, the Trails Collective Patreon page and join us uh, as a Patreon supporter. Every little bit helps, and we will do what we can to turn it back into supporting athletes and media uh, covering trail running in our region. Uh, so thanks uh, this week to a uh, good friend, longtime friend, uh, Jim Lampman, as well as uh, Clement Chung, uh, both New York uh, trail and ultra individuals. Uh, Jim always focused on how many uh, hundreds he can do in the year to a certain extent. He's got his favorites. And then uh, Clement, I think, focused this year on many on the Jenny and Twisted Branch. So to both of you, thank you for coming on and for your support. Uh, events that ran this past weekend, uh, there were, I think, just a couple, uh, at least that were on my radar. Fire on the Rocks 10K in Mecklehattan, PA. Uh, put on by the PA Trail Dogs crew. Uh, it was a battle for the win with Brock Ryder pulling it out in 110.33, just 17 seconds ahead of second. And for the women, John Lucas for the win in 117. I think it was a good snow year. Uh, still, uh, well, we, we got a decent amount of snow. I think it was like on Friday. Uh, so I think it made uh, for a, a fun course. And then uh, the uh, Sasquad crew put on the single squash 5.5 uh, and 11 in Mawa, New Jersey. Benjamin Collier and Alexander Finn Atkins for the men's and women's wins. Uh, and then on the media front, let's see, um, uh, Jay and Phil uh, with the Pain Cave uh, went live with uh, their coach, uh, both coached by uh, David Roach. I was able to just catch that or listen to it uh, today uh, in the shop. And uh, it was a nice interview uh, for David, who don't know, is a pretty outstanding runner and coach. Actually, I should say he and his wife. Um, it was just David on the episode, but uh, Megan, a phenomenal runner and coach uh, as well. Uh, so head over to the pain cave uh, if you want to check that out. All right. So, Ashley, you're tuning in. I see you there. I'm about to bring you in. Hi. Ashley, thanks for being on. How's it going? Hey, as, good. Uh, as, well, as well as your trail partner. Uh, yeah, multiple trail partners here I have in the background, some dogs. Um, but I just wanted to let all the uh, local Ithaca ladies know that we are starting a uh, trail sisters chapter here. My friend Nicole and I, we are doing our first event this Sunday to celebrate the first day of spring, which I think we're all very excited about here. Um, it's at nine o'clock. We're going to do a group run uh, starting um, by the Children's Garden and probably just do an out and back on the Black Diamond. It's definitely, uh, you know, everyone welcome, all speeds, all distance. I'm sure this will be a very more meet and greet first meetup but it should be fun. You can follow us on Instagram for more at Trail Sisters Ithaca. And then you can also look us up on the Trail Sisters website. Cool. And for those who aren't already familiar with Trail Sisters, what's Trail Sisters all about? I mean, you um, kind of get it from the title, but tell us about Trail Sisters real quick. Yeah, it's a nationwide group um, that was started to sort of work on getting more women into trail running and also hiking as well. Um, they do a lot to support females getting out and involved in um, trails and running. Right on. And what uh, in terms of chapters, uh, so Ashley is based where I am here outside of uh, Ithaca. And what, uh, so for the chapters, kind of what's your, I mean, I'm sure anybody can come in from anywhere and always welcome, but what's your kind of geographic radius or pull or whatever? So I think we're looking for mainly just anyone that's in the area. I know that I have personally gone to other Trail Sisters events whenever I was visiting the area. 
Um, so I know quite a few people in the Trail Sisters Pittsburgh, and then I met some people at the Trail Sisters Morgantown uh, chapter at a race. And so it's anytime that you're traveling anywhere and want to go on a trail run and looking for new places to go or maybe some people to run with, it's a great thing to look up on their website and you can find other ladies to run with. Cool. Sounds good. And for any of you who are interested or if you want to connect uh, further with Ashley, feel free to drop me a line through the Trails Collective and I can connect you uh, with Ashley. And then uh, maybe in the future, Ashley, you can give me a heads up if you've got stuff going on as well and I can plug it again or any of them out there. I know one of our longtime Trails Collective supporters uh, is Grace Langhine, uh, also with the PA Trail Sisters crew. Uh, so if there are other crews of you out there, feel free to uh, reach out and um, we can see if we can spread the uh, spread the word. Yeah. Thanks for having us, Ian. Hopefully we'll uh, yeah. be there with us on Sunday. Yeah, right on. Thanks so much, Ashley. Bye. All right. See you. All right. So uh, check that out for sure. Trail Sisters, uh, pretty awesome. Uh, I think uh, trail running is still one of those things where it's uh, predominantly um, white, older dudes like myself just out there. So it would be great to see if we could uh, diversify that a bit. Uh, in addition to Trail Sisters, uh, trying to really expand the pool beyond just uh, old white dudes. Um, I've also tried to reach out to some other groups uh, like Black Men Running, the chapter out of Philadelphia, uh, as well as the one out of Brooklyn. I've also reached out to uh, Black Women Running out of the uh, Albany and Buffalo uh, areas up here. Uh, and so far, I've made some contacts, had some good conversations, but haven't been too successful in uh, getting individuals to uh, join us who might not otherwise. So we will keep chipping away at that and see if we can make the uh, our awesome trail community even more awesome um, by making it a little bit more uh, diverse. So uh, thanks to all of you out there who are also uh, working to do uh, the same. Uh, so uh, if Steve Malin uh, is out there, Steve, if you're trying to log in and I can't see you, I apologize, but I can't see you. If you end up uh, tuning in tonight, uh, maybe I can... Uh, uh, break or pull you through or we'll uh, pull you through between the uh, the Barkley and Scott McCubrey uh, segment. So I am going to uh, move into pulling uh, Alyssa, Michael and Chris into the feed here. Thank you all for being with uh, with us tonight. And uh, I will do an introduction uh, a bit for each of you in case people out there aren't already familiar with uh, your chops. Um, so let's start with you, uh, Alyssa. Uh, Alyssa Gadeski with finishes at Western, second place marks at Old Dominion and Hurt. She may be most known for a win at the Jarman's Invitational Marathon in 2020 <laughs> on the event front. Yeah. Uh, Beast Mode has been displayed in FKTs on the Vermont's Long Trail in 2018, and more recently, an incredible effort of three days, 16 hours for the Adirondack High Peaks in 2020. And I thought that was a pretty incredible effort. I was out there. I don't know if I was more of a help or a hindrance, but I was uh, trying to assist um, Sarah Kai's uh, also going for it at the same time. Uh, and I can just in the, I don't know, uh, I don't know, 18 hours, 24 hours, whatever I was out there with Sarah can attest to just how burly that effort was and just how incredible it was. And we crossed paths with uh, Alyssa, um, I don't know, maybe a, a couple days in or something like that. And I, I'm kind of embarrassed to say, but I'm just gonna I'm just gonna put it out there because that's kind of you know how, how it went that time. So uh, as we were sending, so I dropped back from uh, Sarah. We were, I was filling up uh, bottles uh, in a creek, um, and then doing my best to to catch back up with her. And for all of you who don't know Sarah, um, a pretty incredible uh, athlete. And so just trying to hang, let alone uh, Sherpa or uh, 
fill bottles, it took a little doing to kind of track her back down. And so I tracked her back up on this ascent, uh, maybe caught up maybe mid climb. I think we were headed up toward uh, maybe gray and skylight uh, before heading over to Marcy. Um, and it was right there that uh, Alyssa was coming down uh, descending. I think you had maybe one of your crew with you, I think at the time. I did. Yeah. And I was headed to Cliff and Redfield. Yes. And Cliff and Redfield, there are two gems uh, <laughs> right there that you are, you're headed into and very, I mean, I don't know, we'll get into this maybe in a little bit with Barkley, but I mean, I guess it's definitely not Barkley, but I mean, they're definitely not walks in the parks with uh, Cliff and Redfield, especially as far as you were in. But the embarrassing part was of, and I hadn't met Alyssa before. Um, and I don't, I just kind of stayed back and let you guys chat for that minute as you continue to hammer on with one another. But I, I left it. I, I mentioned to Sarah afterward, I was like, Hi, how, how are her teeth so white? Like, <laughs> of all the things that I was focusing on the moment, here's this badass athlete who's wicked tough and doing this incredible effort. And I'm like, I'm sitting here just watching you guys talk. And I'm like, wow, she's got really white teeth. Um, Thanks, yeah, Ian. My I, parents would be very pleased to know that. That's good. Well, well done to them. Well done to them. I think I have a cavity in basically every tooth. And, uh, and so I appreciate um, how stellar yours appear, um, especially a couple days into the Adirondack FKT attempt. So well done. Well done. Um, all right. So uh, Chris Roberts. Uh, Chris prefers uh, them long and hard. Uh, with multiple 100-mile finishes, including Grindstone and Hurt. He's a frequent flyer at Hellgate, uh, which includes losses uh, to John Anderson. Um, he's multiple first loser, or the assist role in finishing second at uh, last person standing events, including Big's Backyard in 2021 with, was it 350 miles? Yep. Yeah. Uh, Lisa, what was your total miles for that Adirondacks? 165. 165. Yeah, well... Yeah, 350. That's not a small amount of miles at all, actually. Um, They're flat, so, you know. Yeah, but it's still 350 miles. How long? How long? What was the duration? Three and a half days. Three and a half days. Yeah, regardless. Pretty phenomenal. Um, and, uh, and a segue uh, into Barkley in uh, 2021 uh, with that uh, effort. He's also just launched an endurance fuel company called Long Haul Nutrition, and maybe we can uh, comment on that here in just a uh, few minutes as well. And then I, I'd like to point out yeah. up here, these are uh -huh. my finisher medals for Jarman's. So, <laughs> yeah, actually, I think I was going to mention you were a Jarman's uh, person as well. And you were, I think, were you second at Jarman's? No, I don't think so. <laughs> you weren't. Debova, were you somebody here with second at Jarman's? Alyssa, you. Debova's yeah. always second, isn't he? Yeah, like yeah. I've, I've been second four times, I think. <laughs> Hey, all right, let's get into that then. All right, Michael DeBova, relative newcomer on the, on the official or trackable trail and ultra scene. Uh, Michael, similar to Chris, is very good at finishing second, uh, particularly at Jarman's. There it is. Uh, but also Eastern Divide, Thomas Jefferson 100K, and Old Dominion. Uh, he's also pretty good at laying down phenomenal runs at Hellgate and took the win at the Barkley Fall Classic in 2021 to secure his entry into the Barkland, uh, Barkland, we'll just go with Barkland, uh, the Barkley Marathons. Um, and so thank you all uh, for being on here today. Um, yeah, he is rocking the beats, uh, Larry Logan on Chris Roberts. Um, so thank you. All right. Um, so let's get into it. So I have a couple, uh, questions here that maybe we'll just set up some discussions for, uh, each of you. And then maybe we can just get into a more general discussion of, of how it uh, went uh, out there. So Alyssa, I will maybe just start with you. Um, so it would seem your effort on the Adirondack High Peak 
uh, High Peaks had elements of being a good resume building training effort for Barkley. Uh, steep climbs and descents, a ton of elevation gain and loss, and some thick, obnoxious bushwhacks. Uh, you made it three days in the Adirondacks, but only one loop of the beast that is Barkley. Can you talk a bit about the comparative values and results? Yeah, I think that the Adirondacks and, and the long trail effort both were catalysts to me even thinking I could take on something like Barkley um, because they are quite a lot of elevation gain and descent in in the miles and it's it's not smooth terrain you know it's technical east coast trail running so really it started with the long trail that gave me kind of planted the seed that it might be something I could do or want to do or could be good at um and then definitely after I finished the Adirondacks I was like yeah I gotta gotta really work on getting into Barkley because I think you know this sounds like it could be something that I'm good at given I've done these um but, you know, the, the Barkley is different. It's, <laughs> um, it's, it's definitely different. Um, I think that for myself, I, I definitely modeled training for Barkley this year at, off of what I've done for the Adirondacks specifically in terms of getting my legs ready to handle the climbing and the descending. I will say it was a lot trickier this year because I moved to New Hampshire last April, just about a year ago. And so with the earlier Barkley date, I was training through snow. Mm -hmm. I was doing a lot of my climbing in micro spikes and snowshoes, um, descending in micro spikes and snowshoes, you know, not getting the same kind of off trail type of, you know, terrain that you'd be getting down south. So I think that played into it a little bit for sure. Um, you know, there's definitely a lot of things I would, I would change up, but I would say what what took me by surprise given what I have seen in things like the long trail in the Adirondacks and then heading down there, you know, and I've trained in frozen head on the trails and stuff. So I'd seen the trail portions, um, was just the, the steepness and the length of all of those off trail climbs being steep <laughs> and longer than I expected. Um, and I think, I think I just thought the training would kind of translate a little bit more with what I did. And, and it took me off guard um, for sure a little bit there. And what was the, so when, when you were, and uh, Michael and Chris and uh, Alyssa as we're uh, talking to those guys as well, for any of you, if anything uh, jumps to your mind or there'll be fun to talk about, feel free to, to cut in as well. Um, but when you mentioned you were doing um, basically similar training to what you're doing with the Adirondacks, what does that look like for you? What are you doing in terms of uh, training efforts and, and building up? I'm doing, you know, I think a lot of the weekends I would do something where um, Saturday I would kind of, you know, accumulate some vert and try and get a lot of vert in the minimal amount of miles, right? And so here where I am, I had a quarter mile stretch of trail that gained 350 feet. So pretty steep, mm -hmm. um, you know, and in 15 miles, you can get 10,000 feet of vert, right? And be out there for several hours to do that. So it would just be up and down, up and down, that sort of thing. And then the following day, try and either do that again, maybe, or maybe go for less for more miles, you know? So I was doing a lot of time on my feet. Um, but because of winter, I was definitely doing less like trail running mm -hmm. <laughs> than I would. Um, you know, when I got ready for the Adirondacks, I was training in the Adirondacks for a good two weeks ahead of time to just be on that terrain. And I would have loved to have been in the whites or, you know, get in 20 to 25 miles of good vert and miles and technical terrain here, but it was just, 
you know, snowshoes and slow going, you're not going to be able to do that kind of thing um, and, and get the same result in the winter. So I would do more gravel roads to get in the miles and things like that. Um, and I think, I think it was good. Um, I think just, you know, different lengths and more off trail training without snow would have helped me. Do you think that it's possible if, um, and I could sign off for it if you want, if you just say mailed a letter to Laz, um, and just asked if he could move Barkley to maybe, I don't know, September next year. Or like I know. If it's hot, right? maybe November. <laughs> and maybe that would be helpful because then you could just train through the summer. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, that would make my life a lot better, I think, and <laughs> increase yeah. my chances a little. I mean, that's, you know, Jarman's is in August. So that's like prime time for me. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. So, uh, Chris, uh, your ability to take a hit and get back up uh, shined at Biggs last year. Uh, as you neared the beating that would be Barkley, did you find a bit of stock in knowing you're capable of uh, getting back up a, a whole lot of times? I mean, the, the biggest thing that I learned from Biggs was that I wasn't going to experience like drowsiness or that, you know, kind of like whole body fatigue early on. Um, I kind of expected like obvious, I don't want to say obviously, but let's be honest, I wasn't going to finish five laps out there. It was just, I mean, it wasn't gonna happen. Um, mm-hmm. But I knew even even then, if it came to something like that, I could probably do the whole thing without sleeping. Um, so getting that kind of having that fortitude from big the bigs experience was probably the biggest um, kind of mental uh, benefit for me. Just kind of knowing I've I've been there before. I've been past that level of of exhaustion. Um, yeah, that was the biggest thing for me. Which is, I imagine, a huge deal. What was the, and I, it's probably not uh, uncommon down there, um, but what was the, um, it was kind of down to, um, who was it? And he was just kind of wandering around the town or somebody called the sheriff or something like that. And when um, uh, Carl was out there on loop four. Uh, yeah. Yes. And I was, yeah. I was honestly a little surprised that, I mean, he made a navigational mistake in the dark, it sounds like, but then, yeah, I thought it was a little odd. To me, at least, that he was kind of going loopy um, and hallucinating so bad at that point in the race. I don't know. It just didn't seem like it was that far along in terms of the time duration. But uh-huh. you know, to each his own when it comes to hallucinating. So. Which is, I mean, it's funny as I'm talking to some uh, individuals or friends so far uh, in some of these TC live series. For all of you, just kind of where the bars are set. Like I'm talking to just really incredible individuals. I mean, you're three of you here. So, you know, whether you think of that of yourself or not, but so incredibly tough. And so, um, you know, if we can say talented, but so it's funny to you say, like, I'm surprised that he was like loopy at that point when you're talking, Oh, Ash, how many hours in would that have been at that point? Would he have been, he was maybe less than 40 hours for uh, maybe okay. about 40 hours when he was, when he probably stumbled into town. So. Okay. All right. Um, I was thinking it was longer than that. I was, for some reason I was thinking in, in the moment that he was like pushing um, uh, into like the third day. And then I was like, well, you know, I mean, that's, eh, you could say it's early, but for the, the mere mortal or whatever, you know, just being up like that long or that train and that depletion or whatever. But all right. Yeah. I mean, I guess 40 hours is still a bit early into it. Um, but I guess in terms of not necessarily knowing just what your body's going to be capable of. And I imagine just given the conditions this year, um, you all, um, and Michael may, you can talk about it in a bit here too. Um, but with him, I imagine the depletion was a little bit higher. I mean, if it were really that cold and that kind of nasty overnight that it really just, it takes something more just out of you in terms of depletion. 
I don't know whether you guys felt that, but it would seem like um, I could see even if it were only 40 well, hours. I mean, I think, I mean, and I can't speak for the front group, right, Michael, you were, you were in it, but I mean, it definitely took me by surprise too. I will say like how hard my effort was to do a 10, 15 loop essentially. Right. Like I, I definitely thought given the approximate distance and elevation you think you're going to be going, I thought I could go kind of like an FKT pace, which you know, in the first day of a, of the Adirondacks, I'm pretty comfortable, you know? Um, and I was, I was hoping, right. Hopeful that that would be the case for a loop maybe to, to start at Barkley. And I mean, people go hard from the start. And I think that's kind of, uh, what a lot of people believe that has to be done to finish five loops. And so then there's kind of a, an effect after that. Right. And so, Cause no one's finished five loops by doing all 10 hour loops, you know, just consistent across the board kind of thing. So it went out, I thought pretty hard from the start. And I don't know how much that kind of came into play for people in the later loops, you know, succumbing to some of the elements and stuff and just having more taken out of them. Yeah. yeah Michael, I'd love to hear your take on that being as how you were out at the very front of it. Uh, like, no, I was fine. <laughs> It's so easy. No big deal. <laughs> I don't know. It was it was definitely quick. Like, especially um, am I echoing to you guys? Does it sound echoey? Uh, it sounds okay. On my okay. Head. Maybe yep. it's just the water in my ears. I feel like I'm mm -hmm. talking underwater, but I'm not. Um, yeah, I mean, I think is it felt really frantic at the start for the first few books. And like those front guys, you could definitely tell we're trying to shake people off just to have some elbow room. So yeah, definitely went out kind of quick. Um, and it felt kind of chaotic. Um, and, but later on, like when it was kind of the group of like, it was like five of us or something. Um, I don't know. We kind of just maintained and kept moving it's kind of tough because it did get so warm um, later in the day. So I think that kind of affected overall feelings of like effort. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's just kind of like moving, like it, it kind of waxed and waned. There are some parts where we pushed more, some, some where we didn't, the downhills, we just, we bombed all the downhills, but it felt like fine. It just felt like relaxed. Like you're just moving like with the landscape type thing. And, so it's um, kind of like a comparative effort. I mean, you've, in some of these longer ones, you, I mean, I guess it's so unique in terms of the uh, the terrain and the format. But when you say it was uh, kind of going out comfortably, I mean, I guess your your brain and body and physiology is already measuring the effort to what's ahead. But when you say it's comfortable, would have been kind of commensurate with your, I don't know, output at something like Hellgate. I mean, is that kind of where you were putting your body in terms of? Uh, was this different? Because yeah, because it's just this like you're either going up or down really steep stuff. And so it's just, it's just a consistent movement forward. Mm -hmm. um, it's not even like, I don't even know if you can call it running really. No, it's, it's either falling or you're kind of like climbing uphill. Um, I've kind of lost my train of thought to be honest. Yeah, yeah. That's all right. <laughs> um, so <laughs> something that a couple of you had said, um, uh, Chris, you had said uh, um, in terms of your 
mentality going in. I mean, you're preparing for five loops in terms of you have to have the amount of nutrition. If everything goes well, you're at least prepping for that. Um, but when you were saying, let's be honest, you know, I wasn't going to make five loops or whatever. That's a fairly kind of deep seated thing uh, to go in with. How did you feel comparatively like it at like bigs where you like to, I, I'm just going to, I have no concept of how this is going to go. I'm just going to hang in there as long as it is. Or did you have some, because there, I mean, 350 miles, I'm guessing you didn't come in saying, I don't know, I can probably do 348 miles fine. <laughs> the next like two miles are probably going to be a little hard, yeah. um, but like I can do 348. Um, but like, that's a huge like effort. So some part of you must have been open to exceeding what you are capable of. But did you kind of, I guess with something like Barkley, knowing it has such a low finish rate, I mean, I guess that's got to make it a very tough thing to bite into and really get yourself to believe like did you how i guess how does that go and for Alyssa and michael as well michael i know you are prepping and wanting to be out there five loops and you probably focus on that Alyssa. i mean i don't know how you were feeling about knowing that um you know also low finish rate and a female hasn't done it yet but like how you know what did that how does that go mentally so for me like i'm a realist i knew that it wasn't gonna happen probably and my training had been complete crap since Biggs. So the last four plus months, I had a hip injury that really limited my ability to to build, um, you know, the, the speed and skills that you needed, like fast downhill running. I just couldn't do it because it was just too risky. Um, so I knew the best I could do is hope to maintain. And so I knew, like, you know, I have this level of, of fitness that I can go in with, and it's not going to be, you know, um, the front packs eight flat. <laughs> you know, first lap, it's going to be more like 10 hours. But I know that if I can do something like that, maintaining that effort, that's going to feel easy. And hopefully I can just kind of carry that forward and not make mistakes. But then on the other end of it, you have to recognize that when you're out there, especially in the dark, and you have never been there before, if you don't have someone holding your hand, you're, you're going to make mistakes. Like it's, it's pretty much impossible. I mean, a lot of the time that I lost out there, what it, I didn't have like navigational errors in like the macro sense, you know, like I went on the wrong ridge or, you know, I'm, I'm going the wrong direction. It was more like I'm running downhill. And then the next thing I know, there's a cliff right in front of me. And I've got to spend 15 minutes, like trudging through rhododendron going one direction and not finding a way out and then going the other way. And then finally figuring out how to go down. But like that's 15 minutes of moving zero feet, you know? Mm -hmm. So that was the big thing for me is just recognizing that there's going to be mistakes and I'm just going to have to live with it. Um, so, yeah. And Alyssa, how about you going in? Like what was your mental state in terms of how you, like what you really bought into or, or what was uh, real for you in terms of your, your kind of vision? Yeah, I was absolutely betting on myself. You know, I was going in with the mentality that I can absolutely do five loops and, was prepping for that and was, you know, ready to do that. I think mentally, um, I think that for me, like looking at, you know, no woman has finished five loops. There hadn't been a fun run in such a long time. I look at a lot of that as a, a numbers game. You know, there are just so few women getting to run it every year that when you look at it over the broad spectrum, you know, like it's been going since for decades and only 15 men have finished and there's, so many more men finishing every time, right? Like the percentages don't add up in my mind to say like women aren't capable of finishing the loops. It's just pure math. We just haven't had enough women. And at that, it's like pretty subjective to who is running, right? Like Laz gets to pick the women. So 
Um, I think that for me, you know, knowing no woman had finished five loops really didn't, of course, it's like, well, it must be really hard. Like I grasped that. I had looked at women who had attempted and, you know, not gotten through five, but, um, you know, I talked to Sue Johnston a, a little bit. She was, she's gone out on a fourth loop. She's actually gone technically the furthest, um, as a woman. And she had come out on the long trail to see me out there, you know, in one of the sections. So I know her just, you know, pretty minimally, but she was like, I think you can do it, you know, and like things like that. So I certainly believed in myself. And I think that I was excited to kind of learn a lot. And, you know, if, if nothing else, just have a go at learning and, and getting as far as I can. But I was, I was definitely surprised that my, my time there ended as soon as it did. Mm -hmm. And then on just the uh, gender note, I think you're probably right in terms of just playing stats. And also when you're uh, considering um, in terms of just the physiological um, attributes or, or variables or whatever, that kind of the, in some ways, the longer and tougher that uh, females would kind of, the equation would start to flip on maybe who it favors in terms of finish rates and times. And, um, and so you're playing the numbers game and is it really just, you think there's less applications kind of, you know, coming in or getting picked or what would it take to get more like in that mix to kind of flip those numbers or get them to say, dude, like you need to accept more females. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I, I didn't ask him. I haven't heard him talk about how like the percentage breakdown of the gender split with applications he gets, you know, um, after being there, I can say the skill sets to be successful are quite specific. You know, um, you have to have nav, you need to know how to use that. Right. And you need to be pretty proficient at it. It's not just map and compass. You have to be comfortable reading terrain in daytime and darkness, all that stuff. You have to be comfortable and willing to do off trail travel, which a lot of the top ultra runners, I mean, it's dangerous. Like I tweaked my knee, you know, I mean, an injury can happen like that. And I admire Courtney DeWalter a lot more now for going year after year, because I mean, she's arguably, you know, the best ultra runner in the country, if not the world, right on the female side right now. And it's, it's not super safe to be running at Barkley at the speed you have to be running to be successful, you know? And so I think it's tough to find people who are willing to practice that kind of stuff to feel comfortable to put themselves out there and do it because it could be career ending. And, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, I hate to sound dramatic, but I think it very easily could be if things went awry, you know? Um, and so I can certainly, you know, I don't fault people for not applying for that reason, but I hope that if it's just a matter of being intimidated by the skill set, you know, I have in when 20 in 2018 when I decided to start applying, I immediately started doing Rogaine events, orienteering events and learning nav and and starting to build that skill set and learning that bushwhacking existed, learning that people went off trail, you know. So it's absolutely a skill and it's one that like my abilities have gone from terrible to <laughs> mediocre, you know, um, but you, you can develop that. And I hope women see that. And honestly, just like awareness, that those events exist, you know, like two weeks ago, I did a two day, 10 hour Rogaine each day in West Virginia. And so it was just navigation on foot, like a foot race like that, you know? And so those events are out there and 
they, your local orienteering club probably exists and you may not have ever known that it existed. And so those are things that can really help you do well there. And I just, you know, whether it's interest or resources or time to be able to commit to that, I'm not quite sure what the barriers are just yet, but hopefully, you know, more, I, I think it's, talking about it more and telling people that that mm -hmm. exists, you know, might hopefully spark some interest and get more of the women applying and, and learning. I think yeah. another part of it is making sure that the women who are seemingly capable of performing well at Barclay are given the opportunity to be there multiple years in a row, because I don't, I don't care what anybody says. I mean, there, there are a couple of the people that have gone out there for the first year and they nail it, but, I'm sorry, it's just not really practical. You've got to go out there and you've got to make mistakes and you've got to learn year after year and kind of build up your knowledge of the course. And, you know, if you just give some some good women, you know, like one chance and it doesn't work out, I don't think that really is indicative of the talent level of the women out there because there, there, there are women out there that can finish. I, I firmly believe that there's a handful out there I don't know exactly who they are. Maybe it's you, Alyssa. I don't know, but I don't know who the next men are that are going to finish the race either. So, and to that yeah. point, it's a huge commitment, like man or woman. If you decide to commit year after year, and hopefully you're someone that he sees potential in, and he'll you know let in year after year to keep having repeat tries, you're committing your winter. It's a really hard training, you know. You're committing what's typically an off season, and it's tough to to do that when. There's no, you know, especially at the top level. I mean, there's not a lot of prize money in general, but, you know, it's a cool race. And it's one I absolutely now would advocate, you know, doing that for. But you also don't know, like, if he's going to pick you. You know, it's not like mm -hmm. it's not even as cut as dry as like a lottery system. Right. So there's so many unknowns. And I think it's it's easy to get deterred in that process, like man or woman. Um, Michael, you had uh, mentioned earlier that uh, off the front that some of the leaders were just trying to uh, maybe shake some people or create a little bit of breathing room uh, around them. So <clears throat> as Alyssa and then Chris were just talking, I was thinking it would be uh, to that point of training for some of the variables uh, that, yes, resources exist out there, such as uh, orienteering clubs, events, uh, whatever. You can go out and do this stuff on your own. But it seems like it could be a very specific, I don't know, you could do like a Barkley training week or whatever and like do all of these skills and maybe those who had done it before would still get out there and it would be beneficial and maybe you could have like different pods or whatever. Um, but that would imply that there's a level of, I guess, cohesion or inter-support among the crews out there. So did it for all of you, um, but particularly since you referenced it, Michael, out there, um, is there a level of we're working together out there or when you mentioned that Michael, it's more, that's just stressful. You have others kind of looking over your shoulder or following you or not giving you birth to look at your maps, or are they really trying to lose you? Cause I don't know, maybe they know the, uh, the way or whatever, and they don't want you to follow. Like, what is it, what's it like out there between uh, pods or individuals? Um, I'm just thinking, I yeah. think it's just so much to process. I'm still like, I'm, I'm still processing mm -hmm. all of it. Um, so it's, it's definitely the first like third of the loop. They, it was definitely like 
business. Like if you can stay with us, great. If not, we could care less. Um, I didn't really say anything the entire first loop. So like, I don't, I don't have anything to contribute here at all. <laughs> I think I, I, I found like a deer antler and I pointed out to like Carl. I was like, look at the deer antler. And he's just like, I don't, I don't care. That's, that's not part of why we're out here. Who is this guy? How did he get here? Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was like, dude, it's like a huge deer antler and nobody cared. <laughs> so that was like the one thing I said, but yeah, it was definitely like, you know, people would help out with like, if we all got to a book together, they'd say, what's, what's your bib number. And, you know, numerically they go through hand you your bib number and then we'd all like bolts. Um, but there wasn't like waiting around is like, this is the pace we're moving. If you can keep up great. If not, well, like, you know, you have a map and, you know, good luck, follow the mm -hmm. footprints in the, in the leaves type thing. But th there, it's not, that wasn't do, really spoken about either. It was, it was kind of just you paid attention to the energy of everybody. And that's just, that was the culture of the pot I was in, which is fine. You know, mm -hmm. it is what it is. That's not supposed to be hand holding out there, but, um, you know. And uh, Chris, you were saying, which, which was tough to do out there in terms of just follow tracks he, or whatever. Yeah, he was talking about what I'd call the leaf churn um, and being farther back, like, I was always on the lookout and on my own for most of the time I was trying to find leaf churn uh, that indicated the trail that the people in front of me had gone down. It was like the proper path. The people that know what they're doing, the veterans, they clearly did this and you can find it a little bit, but then it would just disappear and you're like, crap, I just ran into a boulder field or, you know, I just ran into a cliff. And <laughs> so frustrating. But, yeah. That was Michael trying to shake you, dude. He was like getting up from <laughs> leaves and going, there's kind of like uh, hashing out there. You just know. throw them out there. Yeah. <laughs> this will get him. Uh -huh. Yeah, dude, I think I followed a, a um, I was trying to do that on the second loop. It was getting dark and I started following what must have been, um, like the wild boars or warthog <laughs> yeah. and i actually saw the same pack of like six or seven scurry by like two different times and each time it felt like i was just more of a failure for following <laughs> <laughs> so yeah the leaf turn was not as i thought it'd be better than it was nope. yeah it's kind of weird though and in the dark too it, i mean because yeah. you don't need it going uphill you right just, you climb super easy um but the downhills where you need to be making up time yeah if you lose it you're you're kind of out of luck for a while yeah and chris and uh Lisa, were you pretty much on your own or did you latch on with others who were oh, kind of yeah <laughs> um i i had a couple groups through the through the first loop that it solidified i guess by about halfway through so um i started out with um a veteran jody eisner and he uh had a lot of us i guess um at once and it was that was pretty comfortable like at that point i was like all right this might work out um and then he decided to turn on the burners on us and i tried to really stay with them and hang with them and that kind of just strung out the pack even more um and so i ended up with like one other guy who was a virgin at Barkley um, for another couple books. And then we eventually kind of got caught by two Swedish women. And then um, another guy, Ian, who was a veteran, he had run one loop the year prior. Um, and so we kind of, 
you know, we had some other people kind of come and go through that mostly, but we actually, we were kind of all together on the same wavelength with like pace that we wanted to be doing, but mostly like precedent took, uh, the mental wavelength was that we all knew that middle section of the course was probably the most confusing for navigation coming through. And we just decided to stay, hang together, um, you know, four pairs, five pairs of eyes were going to be kind of better than, uh, two or one at a time. Right. So we figured if we were slowing down a little, just to keep ourselves together, that was the right call. And then for like the last third of the course, we separated a little bit and then I became a group with, um, Ian and then, um, Anna and Johanna, the Swedish women. So it was the four of us that kind of finished up that loop together and started that the second loop. So it was, it was really nice to have a group. Um, it was definitely, you know, for sure. Teamwork gets you, you know, if you can find a group that's going the pace you want, it's really, really helpful. But I think also something I personally would work on is being prepared to go alone as well. Mm -hmm. Um, and just having the confidence to do that, I think is just as important. Yeah. In terms of the uh, prior experience in, in confidence, Michael, you had, uh, so, um, won the uh, fall classic. Do you feel like that was indicative of kind of what was to come? Does that give you a good, does doing that event give you a good indicator of what it is just going to need more of it for the full, or is it, you kind of get to know maybe these known trail sections, but it really doesn't give you a feel for really what's ahead with the marathon. Uh, it, it served me well to be able to like look at a map and kind of visualize aspects yeah, just the fall classic basically uses like a lot of the established trails and frames it all in. So it's kind of nice to kind of have that as references um, and for feeling slightly oriented. Um, but it's still also the fall classics, like nothing like Barkley. Barkley's a lot better mm -hmm. in my opinion. <laughs> so. Yeah. The Barkley being like the Barkley marathon one. Yeah. Bar yeah. I mean, yeah. The fall classics fine and, and great but the real deal is amazing yeah the, the, um, the fall classic i don't think has you know repeated 1500 foot climbs at 50 percent pitches where you, yeah you, no you're, you're on the trails and you around. do rat jaw a couple times yeah. but that's all just you know insane thorn jungle so it's just different it's just different but so, speaking of that and just getting the visuals, uh, because you often see, I don't know whether it's coming up Ratchar or some of the others where you see the photos of people just completely like gashed uh, from all the briars or whatever in their legs or whatever. And every time I'm looking at it, I get that there's like hot portions, but knowing like that's what's ahead. Like, why are people wearing shorts out there? I mean, if it's over like 50 degrees, you might want shorts. I wore tights the whole first loop and in the afternoon it was warm yeah uh -huh. so like if it was if it was another three or four weeks later if it was in april like it usually is and Ugh. you got a warm afternoon it would be miserable like just absolutely brutal it's also i grew up or in times just running through the woods off trail uh whatever here in the northeast and you're yeah i mean you you get particularly uh later in the year um sections that are totally overgrown 
with uh, blackberries or whatever. And yeah, you get all gashed up and you don't necessarily notice it in the moment, but then you get back and finish the run and you get in the shower and you're like, wow, like I, that's like 28 slashes like on my leg or whatever. And I guess there's some of that where maybe you don't necessarily notice in the moment, but like, that's like just death by a thousand cuts out there in terms of just your body is just like, yo, <clears throat> like I just got a cut on my leg. I got to react to this. I'm going to send some blood that way. We're going to try to send some resources that way. I need you to just pipe down. And then you do it again. And then you do it like 123 more times. At some point your body's going to be like, this is just stupid. Like I, what? I, just stop, just stop. And so I get to the top, but I might kind of want to wear Kevlar like out there in some of those sections. Um, all right. A couple of questions. There are a couple of comments from uh, Ellie in here. You guys can potentially see them in the thread as well. Um, the first one was, uh, you ain't selling this race, to be honest. And, and Ellie, whatever, she's like a road marathoner. And she, yeah, all right. So she golden ticketed, it, you know, at some race recently. But like that was like a road race. Come on. And she, you know. All right. So it, it seems like if you're not finding your way to Barkley, like on your own terms, that even though maybe the and I still haven't watched the movie, um, but knowing that the movie was probably pretty entertaining and 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 turned a lot of people onto it, it seems like one of those things that maybe that's not necessarily one that you turn on people like an entertainment value. Like it's just a beast of an event, and so it's nice to find out about it. But it's like either you're into Barclay or you're not. But it's not really one to necessarily sell to somebody. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. All right. Yeah. Fair. If you guys had comments on that, that's fine. But yeah, that was my take. Um, yeah, that, yeah, maybe not one to convince somebody of. Um, <clears throat> and Chris, I was going to mention this as well. Chris, how did your long haul nutrition go for this race? Did you use it exclusively? Um, we were joking before we went live here tonight and I um, uh, hopped on. Chris was uh, chomping on something. And I just joked that maybe that was some just powder balls of his long haul nutrition that he's just sitting at home, just kind of gnawing on long haul nutrition. That's all um, I consume nowadays, just 24-7. <laughs> that's good, because that's what it's, that's what he's in for the long haul. Uh, oh, yeah. And so, and he just mentioned, and Alyssa was funny, um, chopped up, chimed on uh, around that time. He just said, oh, it's kind of sad, because you come home with all these, whatever, you're unpacking it and unpacking the expectations of, you know, you're coming prepared for five loops, and you're coming home with four loops worth of uh, food or whatever. Um and so, but speaking to that, Rob, Chris, was that what you were using out there paired with uh, real food? Yeah, it was, uh, I mean, basically there's only so much liquid you can really carry. Um, so I had, I had a decent amount of kind of solid food type stuff um, in gels or pouches and stuff. But yeah, I was using long haul in a, in a bladder. Um, I had it filled up and then, you know, uh, like a 20 ounce bottle that I used um, after each water drop I would fill up and just dump in a few hundred calories of that along the way. So worked fine. And Alyssa, with your FKT uh, background, um, it would seem like you'd have your uh, at least gear uh, selections fairly dialed in from the efforts that you've done. And maybe given if you're uh, self-supporting out there and carrying this stuff and humping it through the woods or whatever, uh, that, that would be a benefit uh, in terms of your, your resume and, and what you've done in the past in terms of having uh, gear dialed. Did any of you have any gear issues or you got out there and you're just like, maybe I should have planned this better. Chris and I both at least broke a pole. Right. I think <laughs> mine was like when I was with Alyssa for a little while at the beginning and then I stopped the time I shoe and they went off ahead and I wasn't really too worried about it. But yeah, like probably 20 Did you at that moment, not to interrupt you here, but weren't you just like, yo guys, I need to tie my shoe. <laughs> Hang on a minute. 
I'm going to look at the leaves, but if you could just hang yep. on a minute, that would be great. Yeah, no, um, I try to be patient, but no, so like 20 minutes later, I snapped the pole. Um, and yeah, it was like we were two hours in. So, did you yell at that point? Did I was you... pretty angry. There were some words that were thrown out. Yeah, I was not pleased either when mine snapped. <laughs> but did you find a stick? Because I found great walking sticks. There well, so it was funny when I passed, when we passed you on the Leonard's butt slide out and back, I saw you with a stick. And so I was like, that actually like was one of the first things that entered my mind when my pole snapped. snapped. I was like, oh, like that's why Chris had a stick. But I was like, Chris's <laughs> stick looked way too heavy. I'm not carrying a heavy <laughs> stick around. So. It was really, but it was really lightweight. So. Yeah. <laughs> so, but by the time mine snapped, it was like pouring. And so I would see one that looked promising, pick it up. And it just like crumbled in the wetness <laughs> in my hands. And I was like, oh, but I, I found a couple good ones and it would disintegrate. And then you'd find a new one. And yeah. Um, so, and not having poles, I mean, Greg, who went on to loop four did quite a bit of the race without poles. And I have no idea how that's possible. Um, I will say there are some stretches where it's too steep for poles. Like that's true. Like it's so steep that you put your poles in and there's not enough bite. <laughs> like if the poles yeah. just slip on down and you basically face plant into the yeah. but it's not very far because it's so steep. It's only like six inches of falling forward. Um, and that makes yeah. you feel good about yourself in that moment, I imagine. I move forward, forward progress. Forward, <laughs> forward face plant. <laughs> and Michael, um, for those of you who don't know, Michael is an uh, uh, instrument uh, maker uh, in his shop there, some of them up in the back. Do you feel like that that was beneficial for you out there if you were to have broken a pole that you'd be able to identify wood species and trees <laughs> and be like, that's a really solid yes. stick? Right that, was, that was plan A. <laughs> so. That was, and I felt really good about, about that. So yeah, I felt, felt like a bomb proof plan. Uh -huh. so, zero concern. <laughs> there were, and, and maybe, you know, it's not necessarily one where you'd need poles, but in Hellgate uh, this year, I was also on the hunt in those uh, uh, long leaf stretches uh, for just some poles, just cause I don't know. Cause I was just kind of meandering about and, um, moving really slowly. And so I was like, ah, maybe I'm just going to pick up some poles here. And so there were a couple of those sticks too, where I'd, where I'd pick up and it looked kind of like a good stick, but then the first time you plant it, it kind of snaps at the uh, bottom. You're like, damn it. And then it becomes slightly too short and then it's kind of awkward. Um, and then, then I'm kind of looking around thinking, what am I doing here? Playing in the woods, looking for like sticks or, or whatever, like, dude, get a hold of yourself here. It, it comes, it definitely comes across to the outside world as like playing in the woods <laughs> yeah <laughs> yep that's good um all right let's see and uh mccubri is on that back end so scott thanks for being on um we'll try to wrap up here in a few minutes on the uh, barkley segment uh let me let me see there were a couple other um questions i had i, I want to know yeah, when you guys quit i'm i'm interested in hearing when and why you guys quit like mentally or physically or whatever we had um the rain for us started, so we got to the top, we got to like book one before we pulled our lights out. Um, and then the rain started book three, which is probably the coldest place possible. Um, just high up, windy, cold, and then pouring rain on us all of a sudden, right? So um, we all stopped to get our rain gear out. And Anna realized she didn't have her rain jacket, like her crew had repacked in in the campground and didn't put the rain jacket in. So mm. 
Um, she had an emergency blanket that she took out, put on, you know, tied around her. We all got our rain gear on that kind of thing. But I immediately was like, whoa, I don't have the right like gloves, you know, to be out here in wet conditions when it's this cold for like too long. So I was a little mindful of that already, I guess. Um, and then, then my pole snapped on that like next descent. So then we had like one thing go wrong, then the pole snapped. And then we had, you know, we found the next book, but it was definitely slow going and, and, and hard to find book four for mm -hmm. us. So I would say our mood just like plummeted in that segment of time. And then climbing up, I think we all mentally thought, okay, we're going to get warm. And we just weren't getting that warm. Um, and then we had another navigational kind of issue with book five. Um, or yeah. So basically we got ourselves good and lost and really cold. And I mean, you guys know, like those conditions, it was almost harder to be with more people because when you wanted to stop to assess where you were, it was like more multiple stopping than if you were just by yourself kind of making the decisions and moving faster. I almost think that was like mm -hmm. kind of coming into play, which was interesting. And so we just had a lot of micro stops and, um, the three, me and, Joh Johanna and Anna, our bodies just got frozen. <laughs> and, you know, Anna's a Swedish mountain guide. I've, I did a winter Pemi loop in the whites. Like I've been in cold conditions in the mountains and it's like, you know, yourself and you know, when, you know, there's, I wanted to be a woman that went really far at Barkley, but I wasn't going to risk being like the first rescue at Barkley to do so, you know, <laughs> like that would be way worse, <laughs> way, way, way worse. And so, um, yeah, I mean, it came down to, safety over like and we all just admitted like we didn't bring the gear required for to keep ourselves warm in those conditions um so we we three just decided we had to go back in and ian actually stayed out um who we were with and he soldiered on and we did the the long once we got ourselves found which probably took about 30 minutes then we had the long long road back on quitters road I, I don't know. I passed Ian at some point, but I have no, I don't know how or where it happened. So. I know. I do wish we had like a way to go back and be able to look at, because you, you, we probably crossed paths with a lot of people out there and just had no idea that they were the next, you know, yeah. tree over basically. And how about for you, Chris and, and Michael, in terms of the, um, the moments and the thoughts and whatever uh, the emotion when you also pulled the uh, pulled the plug. Well, I didn't pull the plug. I <clears throat> oh, finished, right. it was time I, on you, right? I finished the second loop over the time limit. I got all my pages. Um, right. I spent a good amount of time out of there in the in the cold and dark. Um, mm -hmm. Not necessarily getting totally lost, but like not finding a book and and that kind of thing, and spending an hour in the wet cold. But mm -hmm. somehow I was able to trudge on. I had like two rain jackets. I was I was totally prepared in that regard. I had like rainproof pants and all that stuff. So. Um, I never really felt truly cold. Well, actually, and it looks like Michael just lost his connection. So if he comes back, we'll, uh, I'll plug him back in, but he must've lost it. So, and that's, a, and that was, I guess going to be one of my other questions or points then Chris was, I mean, it seems like something like this is a big enough, um, just endeavor where there's so many angles where it can just find and exploit your weaknesses, whatever that might be. It may be navigation. It may be climbing, it may be overall fitness, in your case, maybe it was just speed. Um, I mean, not that you're you're slow by any stretch, 
Uh, but I mean, that's a good point. Like you had the, like the, the toughness again, to keep taking beatings and, and going back out. But in this case, you, you kind of timed out. I needed a veteran to hold my hand more than I thought, especially in the night. Like there was just so many opportunities to make mistakes and slow down. So mm -hmm. that was the biggest thing for me. But even then I wouldn't have been able to make it past three loops. Cause I just, I did not have the fitness for that this year. So. Mm -hmm. And then Michael, how about for you for that, that point to, to make the, make the call or make the decision? Um, for me, I knew going into it that my biggest thing to prevent me from like, I, I was dead set on five loops. Like I was like, my mind was made up, but I knew that with, so I have Raynal syndrome and <clears throat> so, um, my hands like, and feet are always like borderline numb and cold, even in the summer. So I was like, if it starts raining and cold, like that's going to be my biggest thing to get over physically and mentally. Um, cause once my hands go, I lose like dexterity and I can't even like, I can't even like touch my fingers together. And so much less open and close gear and tear pages out. And so once it started raining and I was, I was drenched within like 30 minutes, like all three layers, everything I had was just soaked. Couldn't feel my hands and feet and my arms are going numb up to like my elbows. Um, I kind of knew that it was going to be turning into like what happened at Hellgate 2019, where I was like, I got hypothermic and was like, basically really close to dying for like an hour and a half. And, um, and just totally like gone. Like I was just, my core temperature was so low at hellgate um so i knew i was like i cannot let that happen out here especially knowing how long like once you decide you're done it still is to get back to camp um so it's kind of like a list of, like i don't want to be a liability like you have to kind of put your ego aside i knew with like the Reynolds and my jaw was starting to like uncontrollably chatter um i kind of knew that that was like the dominoes were starting to fall into like the land of hypothermia and um it just yeah it just wasn't it felt kind of irresponsible mm -hmm. and i kind of had to put my ego aside and be like you know because if what happened out there what happened at hellgate 2019 like i could have easily I, I i would just be dead out there because there's no way for anybody to get to you um at all um and, and that would have just been like really awkward for a lot of reasons so I remember you like coming across you at Hellgate 2019, like uh, at whatever that aid station was, lookout. Yeah, or, yeah whatever that, that mountain is. Little Cove or something. Yeah. yeah, yeah, Cove. And you were just miserable. And I, I didn't have a rain jacket, a proper rain jacket, you know, and I was soaking wet. But I remember like when I was when I was at Barclay that night, it was like, I made it through. I made it through yeah. Hellgate. So like I can do that. <laughs> so that was, yeah, a little bit different situation. I was lucky to have really good rain gear. Um, yeah. It's crazy. I was surprised with how quickly all my stuff got soaked, like down to my core. And then I was also, it got super windy where I was and then foggy. So it was like, mm -hmm. you have this torrential downpour, fog, wind. And then also knowing that is going to be like 11 hours of rain. I was like, I'm already soaked and like, can't feel like most of my body. It, so it was also like, if I can't unzip my, 
my coat to get food. Like I can't even like take nutrition in. So it's just mm -hmm. this like, um, yeah, I was having those yeah. same thoughts of like, I'm going to have to change headlamp batteries at some point. Cause it's right. only, you know, two hours into darkness right now. Like I'm going to have to tear a page, like getting to a page and you, I literally wouldn't have been able to tear the page right. from the books. Right. And it's like, you just start to realize that it's, it's yeah. like, yeah, mm -hmm. don't go any further at that point. And it's tough. Like when you feel physically like you're ready to like, just keep going and like physically you feel good and, and you know, before the rain and cold and like mentally you're prepped to just like dig super deep, <clears throat> you know, it, it is disappointing to have to make that call, but at the same time, it's, it is, I think safety and responsibility and, you know, you just have to make those game day decisions. So, yeah. Are there other angles that would be fun while the three of you are together here as you're all decompressing and hashing and not that you can't be in contact outside of this, but in the moment, anything that would be fun to ask one another or to decompress on uh, about the uh, event or looking forward? Um, you, you guys need to, to hang out with me sometime on, on a little video chat and you can show me exactly how to get through Stallion Mountain. Oh my God, dude. <laughs> I don't know. Like I know conceptually like what the roads are and where you're supposed to go, but like the specifics uh, of exactly where to turn off. I was like, cause I was, I was like two minutes away from catching Alyssa at that point. And I was like, I've got to catch these people. So I'm not lost out here. Oh, at the water the drop. Line. You were so close. Yeah, I, was so close and I, I was like barreling <laughs> to try and catch you guys. And I couldn't make it. And by the time I got to the turnoff, I was like, I'm, I'm, I'm screwed. I have no idea exactly what I'm supposed to do here. Isn't that the worst feeling when you just realize you're screwed? Yeah. I got lost for like an hour and a half. Yeah. And it's that, it's such a sinking feeling when you're like, I, I'm legit screwed, you know? And you just have to like sit there and be like, okay, well, <laughs> I need to unscrew this. <laughs> oh my God. There was, um, made a couple trips up to Alaska and uh, one of the times we were doing this point to point where we uh, flew into Anchorage, drove to McCarthy uh, like eight hours Southeast. And then we uh, caught a bush plane out of McCarthy and got dropped off. Um, it was like 45 minute flight in uh, to the Wrangles. And, uh, and then we were going to get picked up five days later at just this pickup point, um, which was this uh, five day, well, it was supposed to be five day hike away. Um, and it was like our first time we got dropped off. It was like in the first hour or two, he dropped us off in this huge, just the, the immensity of the, the landscape, just, just huge. Like anything I had had an experience. And so we're looking at the maps and I probably have, uh, a 10th of the skills that you guys all have, but we're looking at the maps, we're looking at the valleys and, uh, and we get our, we think our bearings and, and we start, start walking toward this uh, valley and they just happened to pass somebody that was uh, camped right on the periphery uh, there and uh, just chatting for a minute, where are you going? And uh, here's uh, where we're, we're headed. And he's like, Oh no, um, you're actually in the wrong Valley. You kind of <laughs> want to be in that, that Valley, like two valleys over that was actually much bigger. When I was looking at the map, I was like, it looks like a pretty big Valley, but actually, no, that's not, not the Valley. And, and so, you know, similarly, like our bush pile was going to pick us up in this location five days later. And if we weren't there, you know, at some point you send out a search or whatever. And we literally were, were, would have been screwed like an hour off the bat if somebody hadn't just been like right there. The crazy um, so. thing though, is that's Alaska. Like that is like such a vast wilderness, 
you know, like I felt almost more confident going to frozen head because I had run trails there before, you know, I had been to the area and kind of gotten my feel. And it's like, you're actually never that far into the deep into the wilderness. Right. So that just makes it even more mind blowing how truly lost people get yeah. because you're not. There's so many ripples. Yeah. I mean, endless ripples. It's just very interesting. The, the terrain, I mean, it's, it's pretty remarkable actually, because you really aren't like that far from civilization to in yeah. theory ever like, get yourself into too much trouble, but like you still yeah. manage to. If you're ever like, you really think you're lost there. You just like pick a direction. Like if you think you're on the Eastern side of the, of the course, you, which you should hope to know what side of the park you're on, just go to the direction of the nearest road. Like you'll get there in a couple hours. Yeah. Go to the direction of the nearest trail. You'll figure it out. Like you're not that far away, but. Well, nice work Unless, to all of you. So go ahead, Michael. What were you saying? I was just going to say something sarcastic. You can say something sarcastic. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. The moment's gone. That's fair, it, would, it would have less effect. It would just yeah, be true. awkward That's now. Fair. <laughs> I would, yeah, it would be awkward. Yeah. Um, so does it leave you guys all wanting uh, another round? Yeah. 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 Cool. All right. Um, well, nice work to all of you for uh, getting there, for towing the line, uh, and to at least uh, laying it out there. And uh, thanks for uh, sharing some of it and decompressing uh, with us uh, tonight. And I will um, connect with you all on the next round. And feel free, if anybody wants to uh, hang out and connect here with McCubrey, um, you're welcome to, to stay on. But otherwise, I can, um, I can connect with you next round. Thanks for the group therapy session. Yeah, we, we, we owe you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'll, yeah, the bill. Uh, invoice well, let's the copay. You know. yeah. yeah, that's fine. Yeah. All right, cool. Thanks, everybody. Right, see, see ya. ya. All right, see ya. Scott. Hey, Ian. How are you? Buddy, I am good. How are you? It's good to see you. It's good to see you also. You know, I had this, um, I've felt uh, guilty this whole time in this past year since you switched gears and tracks that, um, <clears throat> that you sent me some great shoes to test. And then I think I reviewed a couple and I felt like, the the reviews they, they were i don't know like i had i had issues with a couple but one of them really uh grew on me and i was like nah, you know if i had more time that would have colored the review better but i was like what if i scott sent me some shoes and then i put out this like review that wasn't phenomenal and like scott was scott sports <laughs> corporate was just like dude you sent it look like you, you use crappy reviews why'd you send this this rube some shoes and he put that out there and you gotta go um so um i hope that it was it was okay i've um, been involved in a lot of shoe reviews over the years ian and and um you couldn't do me um you couldn't do me wrong all right all right good um <laughs> but know that i i did uh one of them at least uh, and it's not here i think behind me it's at home i'm still in the rotation that uh it did grow on, grow on me but all right so uh, thank you for being on everybody who is tuning in. Uh, thanks for being with us for the uh, Barkley uh, segment. And here I'm going to dig into a longtime friend, uh, Scott McCubrey, who I've been uh, very thankful as part of my uh, roots uh, session. Um, and uh, Scott is the general manager of Smiley Creek Lodge along the headwater headwaters of the Salmon River in Ketchum, Idaho. Uh, Scott was marketing director for Montreal from 1995 to 2000. He owned and operated the Seattle Running Company from 1999 to 2010, 
was a multiple brand representative from 2010 to 2020, including stints as a U.S. manager for Scott Sports between 2011 and 2017. Uh, so Scott has for, she, for sure been at pretty much all levels of uh, trail and running and so much more in the uh, U.S. And uh, for sure, uh, from my vantage point, a foundational influence in so many ways with so many uh, butterfly effects. And so, Scott, I am uh, grateful to be uh, taking a bit of your time here this evening. Well, thanks for being so kind. Totally, man. Um, all right. So I have a um, list of uh, questions or concept concepts here. Feel free to uh, dig into uh, any others if it would just kind of seem uh, fun. Sure. Uh, and we'll just kind of see where that goes. Um, so um, we'll start with, I guess, your roots. So you grew up a competitive skier and moved more into trail ultra later on. Uh, how's the body hold up, holding up and what are your go-to physical pursuits these days? <laughs> Mostly I ski a lot. Um, uh-huh. And I'm living in Idaho now and um, you can see what's across nice. the street yep. from me right there. And yeah, uh, just out, out my back door. Uh-huh. And um, backcountry skiing in particular has been really kind on my body. Um, and you know, I won't say that running was bad for my body. As a matter of fact, it probably kept me um, as active as I've been even to this day. Um, but am not really able to run a whole lot anymore due, a couple, due to a couple of joint surgeries. Um, but still get out and mix it from hiking to running on my own solo out into the the Idaho wilderness here. Um, and so the mix of mountain biking and running in the summertime, and then, um, the amount of skiing I get in, which is most days, um, is keeps me super fit still. Um, mm-hmm. but my competitive days as an ultra runner, are definitely seen, seen the better days and are behind me for the most part. Um, but you never know going forward, you know, as you get older, it's, it's battle of attrition, right? You just got to hang in there where other people just kind of uh, fade. And then who knows, maybe they got some amazing hardware to kind of uh, beef up that, that knee or whatever those uh, the joint weaknesses are. Yeah. A little knee in a back. Um, it's um, the back stuff and nerve d- damage is, is usually a hard thing to overcome as far as maintaining strength for the knee joint that's been operated on a couple of times and, arthritis catches up to you, but there's, there's things for sure. There's, um, you know, parcel knee replacements and, um, I've had several synvisc injections. I even had micro fracture surgery, which kept me going for about hmm. eight or nine more years. And, um, as far as just the, the discomfort in my knee and being able to keep putting the miles on, but, mm-hmm. um, but it's still, um, yeah, I'm still a big part of the local running community around here and whatnot and have stayed involved in the footwear world in a big way and um, continue to put on the White River 50 race up until just two years ago, which I passed on to James James mm-hmm. Warner um, um, since I've been living in Idaho now for, for quite some time. Um, and But mostly I just like to run off into the mountains either on my skis or on my own with my dog now. So some things, some things never change in that regard. I feel like that's how I, I met you. Uh, however, 20, <laughs> 20 some years ago was you were doing that same thing. It's the same thing. Yeah. Uh-huh. 
Yeah. And so Nancy, Nancy Hobbs, um, um, and Nancy's in Colorado. Is that where Nancy's Nancy's in Colorado? Yeah. 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 So I know you guys have uh, crossed paths quite, quite a bit over the years. Um, but, uh, just ask question. Did you have back fusion? So I had lateral disectomy. Um, I, um, L4, L5, um, blew laterally to the left, packed into my sciatic nerve area, turned on the nerve channel. And so they had to go in and remove the pieces of disc and whatnot out of my sciatic nerve area. They had some nice dime sized pieces of disc they got out of there. And, um, and it was mostly a refrigerator that did it. I'm sure it was years of downhill ski racing in particular that, that was a little bit of the predisposition there. Um, and, um, so it was a good two year recovery to even get back to skiing from, from that particular surgery. But it's one of those things that doesn't always fully go away. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it's, it's kind of one of those things you're managing on a consistent basis, but skiing and running, I think keeps my joints strong, you know, as I mm -hmm. keep moving that way. Um, and I think after you do something like that, um, your best default for activity is what your body is used to doing and skiing and running, you know, really at a different level and a different pace from the running standpoint in particular after the back surgery. But, um, it's what my body was used to doing and it still felt, you know, like the best activity to keep myself strong for sure. Yeah. All right. And, uh, Nancy said she has L4, L5, uh, issue. Uh, so she's, uh, relating, uh, in some regards there. All right. So let's dig in, uh, to some of your, uh, some of your background pieces. Cause it's, I think it's quite applicable. And for those who don't know you or find, uh, their way to this interview with you uh, later on. And I know you've, uh, uh, I think, uh, Jamil, uh, Curry, I think had you on uh, relatively recently, maybe a year or two ago and yep. uh, got into some of the roots. Uh, but really it's, um, in so many ways, I think influenced, uh, what we know to be the trail and community uh, space now. So I think it's really important to, I think, honor and celebrate and just uh, keep that, uh, that record, so to speak here. So let's go into some of that. So a common theme connecting most of those uh, in my trail route series has been a foundation in Montreal. Uh, you started that position in 1995, I believe. I yeah. And actually before that, I was um, the one sport rep before mm -hmm. they changed their name to Montreal. And so officially I started the one sport team before Montreal existed. <laughs> so. Yeah. And so this was, so yeah, so that would have made it one sport that at the time rebranding as Montreal in 1997. Yeah. Um, and that would have also made you instrumental within the team in those years. Yeah. So tell us about one sport shift and renewed focus and branding as, as Montreal uh, back at that time. Yeah. So, you know, personally, um, I was still in and around the ski industry. I actually left a 10 year gig with Nordstrom where I was selling, mm -hmm. I was in the haberdashery business, managing men's suits in the East coast in Washington, DC for Nordstrom. And I left a 10 year of, you know, intensive retail um, where I had moved away from the Northwest DC running on trails was a great replacement for the access of skiing that, that I had pre previously had and got into running marathons. And then when I moved back to the Seattle area, um, kind of the skiing and the running thing just came together. And I just started, you know, in the early nineties, just 
going out on my own and running routes that I hiked with my parents and backpacked with my parents in the Alpine Lakes wilderness and Tiger Mountain and then discovered Cougar Mountain was right a mile and a half from my door. I was living out at my parents' house and, at the time. And, um, and so I, um, after leaving Nordstrom, I actually got hired from a friend of mine because I was boot fitting at Sturdivant's at a ski shop and ended up uh, becoming a rep in the Northwest for K2 inline skates and a, several other outdoor brands, um, tents, backpacks. And we picked up the one sport brand. Um, and at the time I was running trails and then at, at the same time I was picking up the one sport brand, I was just discovering that there was actually this competitive world on trails out there that really wasn't the competitive aspects hadn't really evolved yet. You know, it was, there definitely was um, a scene in the 100K and the 24-hour, guys like Frank Bazanich and, and David Horton was out there running across the U.S. and stuff like that. And um, at the time, Tim Tweetmeyer was winning Western States and Ben Hyen was beating the Tar of Marins over at Angeles Crest. And we picked up the One Sport brand. And I'm like, you know what? To drive the sales of this trail one trail running shoe called the one sport vitesse i think i'll make a little northwest trail running brand in my territory and see if i can bump up rei's business and stuff and so jim kirby was a local i got to know and dave terry and i grew up ski racing together um and rob lang was another guy i met the first year i ran an ultra which was white river um, was my first ultra that I ended up directing for years um, and created this little trail running team in the Northwest. And um, it really helped explode the sales of the Vertess just in my territory in, in the Northwest and created this little demand in some of the running shoe stores that they had never experienced as a hiking brand before. Um, and, you know, one sport saw this happening Um and started talking to me a little bit about, you know, who I knew out there. And I, I've been reading about this guy, Tim Tweetmeyer, I told him, and I've been reading about this guy, Ben Hyen. And so they brought, actually brought Ben Hyen in and had me come in and meet him. And we ended up signing the first, you know, arguably one of the first ultra running contracts for a runner. I'm sure Ann Tracy had something with Nike preceding that. And there's a few that I'm missing here, here and there. Um, but um, we ended up, you know, sponsoring Ben Hyen. And then Montreal, our one sport turned to me and said, you know, we're changing our name to Montreal. We're a little bit nervous about the name change. You were really able to create this buzz in the Northwest with one sport. Can you do that in the rest of the country? And I'm like, yeah, for sure I can do that. Um, so I just kind of took that model from the Northwest and being a salesperson and into sales management for a brand, I kind of designated the different sales territories in the U S and started going out and trying to meet runners. And then as I met more runners, I would bring these runners with me to these races in different territories. And at the time ultra running was, it was very secular. You know, you ran races in your area and I went to Oregon I'd go up to Vancouver, you know, and, um, and so this actually started to kind of, you know, taking guys that were on this team that we had started to create, like 
Dave Terry and Rob Lang. And we'd go out to the way too cool 50 K and meet Tim Tweetmeyer. Then we signed Tim Tweetmeyer on as one of the early Montreal guys. And then, um, and signed on Kirk apt in Colorado. Then I took, um, Kirk apt and met Scott Jurek and signed Scott Jurek on and me and Scott Jurek went to the East coast, met up with Ian Torrance for the first time. And we went down to David Horton's race and, in a mountain masochist to support that event and got to know David Horton. And pretty soon we just had this um, really tight group of people that were from different parts of the country. But the model for me, from a marketing standpoint, was really to have three or four, you know, well-known, um, well-represented, uh, you know, people that everybody liked in each sales territory that could help us then play shoes into stores. And mm -hmm. it really turned into a neat synergy with everybody. Once everybody got to know each other. And by the time 99 rolled around and I was opening Seattle running company um, and picked up the white river 50 race, um, we hosted the national championships and then our cabin up at crystal mountain with um, beds for 24 people. We had Tim Tweetmeyer. We had, and Trayson, we had Courtney Campbell, we had, um, I think Dave Mackey showed up that year, and Ann Trayson was coming into the cabin going, can you introduce me to David Horton over there? And and um, um, someone else was like, oh, can you introduce me to Ann Trayson? And <laughs> no, we're all sitting on the floor together and running this race. And, um, and so it, it kind of created this model. And at the same time, um, Patagonia approached me to, um, they were coming out with their endurance line and Jeannie wall, who was the head of that, that division for them. She's like, I really want to be a part of what you're doing. And so it became this Patagonia ultra Patagonia Montreal ultra team, which really helped establish the Montreal name. Cause it, it wasn't known. It was a brand new brand, new name. One sport hadn't been around that long and was only about 3.2 million in sales. So it was a small little hiking brand. And, you know, I think in four or five years, probably five years, the Montreal brand went to probably close to 17 million in sales, I would think, over that period, mostly in this trail running venue. Um, but and, what, and with you, I guess you quantify that and you look at some of the stats. Do you know what the and it's fun to hear you talk about this stuff? Because, you know, I think I started college in 95, uh, yeah. finished in 99. But I remember having a. You know, whatever computers were still kind of new internet was um like just coming on so like it's not like you could just hop on to facebook like i do and be like track this person down and reach out and send them a message or whatever like it's it's fun that you actually had to go to the races or you're having to look at i imagine there was like some sort of no it was I, like ultra running publication or something out there that you're you're hearing about or reading about but it's it's so much different time so you know i first read about tim tweetmeyer and then i think also ben hyan so when you said read about, like, where do you read about them? Outside like Magazine featured those guys and uh -huh. um, at different times. And Western States, when I read about Tim Tweetmeyer in Western States, it completely fascinated me. And I got my buddy Dave Terry to go jump in and let's do this 50-mile race at Crystal Mountain where we lived ski racing for years. And um, next thing you know, like nine months later, him and I were at the start of Western States, you know. And, um, and so – um, it was all reading in magazines at that point. And so when I first got on with the one sport deal and they talked about um, nationalizing this team concept, the first thing I did was start 
dialing directory assistance. And <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah. Uh-huh. And then I discovered, you know, Ultra Running Magazine was this resource. And there was a picture of Brandon Sobrowski in the middle of Ultra Running Magazine, leaning over a bunch of mushrooms with his dreadlocks just after he'd run like three hours and 21 minutes at, at a 50K in Big Bear, California, you know. And so and I was going to Wasatch that next year to pace Dave Terry. And one of my goals was to meet Brandon Sobrowski and see if he was someone I'd want to have on the team. And um, and then I'm reading about Ian Torrance in the East Coast where he was at. And so I got on board with Vermont 100 and, and went out to support that event and also run it myself because I ran all these events as well. And um, one of my goals there was to meet Ian Torrance and see if he was somebody that I'd want to have help in the Northeast with marketing the shoes. And great story with Ian was, you know, I was at my Montu, my mom, my, it was the first year it was Montreal. So it was the Montreal booth and Ian came in and got his stuff. And um, I had somebody, you know, confirm that that's who that was, but I was too busy in the expo to, to approach him. And so somebody pointed out his car to me out in the field, in the parking area. And um, I walked out to his car and he was asleep with his head against the window. And I never met him before. And so I knock on the window and wake him up. And he's like, I'm like, hey, Ian, I'm Scott McCubrey. I'm like, do you need a place to sleep? And I'll buy you some dinner. Next thing you know, we're having dinner together. He's spending the night in my hotel room. We ran the first like 12 15 miles, maybe even longer of the race. He ended up third that year together. And next thing you know, Ian was part of that Montreal team and one of my best friends. And so that's kind of how it went. You know, it's, um, it was trying to figure out what events were attracting certain runners. And so I'd read about Ian Torrance. Um, I found out he was going to Vermont. Um, So I called up the race director at Vermont and said, Hey, you know, I'm with this new shoe brand and there was nobody out there marketing. I said, you know, I'll, I'll come and I'll help you boil potatoes, mark course. I'll do a raffle for your, um, for the adaptive speed skiing sports for the expo and I'll run your race. And, um, and that evolved into bringing these guys with me and, um, going to run other events like at Horton's race or way too cool for Greg Soderlund and, um, having Courtney and myself and Dave Terry, I'll say in at Rick Simonson's house, who was always perpetual top three at Western States at the time and running way too cool together. And then we all just became really tight friends. And then the sales just kind of came along with that for Montreal, um, which was cool. I remember and the question. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. yeah. It was yeah. all about networking through you know, you had to read about someone then I had to find their phone number and then I had to find a way to meet them. And through the events, by supporting the events, I found that be, was the best way then to go out and meet the athletes. Yep. And the, um, <clears throat> I remember it was probably only a couple times that I was in the Montreal, must've been like the offices or something, just must've stopped in a couple of days with like Chrissy or something like that. But I remember being in there and just had seems pretty vivid, but I guess it's kind of morphing with maybe other publications at the time where it was that initial, what ended up being the kind of the, the poster athletes for Montreal and literally like posters or like the big pictures blown up in the office or whatever. And it just seems so, I guess, like 
cool and like it was inspirational and it was like these roots because it was something that still seemed kind of new and um it was this like dedicated like trail team and i don't know maybe it was like the four or five of them at uh like trail walker or something like that i just remember thinking that's cool right and then you had and some of them were very marketable like going out to meet brandon and it's like is brandon going to be a good fit for the team well whether he's a good fit or not like it's kind of like brandon became right this this very um visual like poster boy for the like this for patagonia but like just like the trail culture like as a whole right with like this long gnarly dreads and like wearing the running skirt like kind of being him doing his own thing big like braided beard right this was like became a very um iconic look (laughs) very iconic look yeah 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 um and scott jerk was a great personality too him and i like um i was at a local 50k and he was um doing a i think a yeah, maybe a residency for PT out in Washington mm-hmm. State. And me, myself, Jim Kirby, and Rob Lang, we were always kind of battling it out, you know, a little bit and in our local races. And we're all looking at each other. Okay, who's going to go today, you know? And this young guy with black curls, just that none of us knew, just bolts off the front. We're all like, oh, he'll come back to us. Yeah, <laughs> we'll catch him, yada, yada. And he was, you know drinking beer and at the time he was eating pizza at the finish line by the time we got there and by the end of that weekend he was on he was one of our on athletes board. and then <laughs> and then um me and ben hyan were hauling him up to angela's crest and i was pacing ben and dusty olson was pacing the uh, scott and it was benefiting the race because you had this cool dynamic going on there and the race directors loved it and and we supported each other, um, even though they were competitive. It was, it was a lot of fun competition at the time, for sure. But, and what was it like? So this also just a different time and space in terms of how big the market was and what your budgets were. And so when you're going um, out and recruiting or getting these individuals all, all on, like uh, on board, like Tim and Ian and Scott, like what are you offering, like as a brand? Like what were the packages to mm-hmm. have a what were you provide? What were you able to provide athletes at that point? So, you know, there was not a lot of competition at all. We were the, I was the only one out there really marketing outside of like Carl King with his, with his, uh, with his electrolyte capsules like succeed or whatever. <laughs> oh <laughs> yeah. yeah was, is that the S or was it S? No, no, that was succeed. Oh yeah. What was, yeah, was the other, all right. Succeed was the only, was the only thing at the time. Like, I mean, I can remember, eating potato chip with a salt and feeling the water go out of my stomach and then going to GNC and buying salt tablets for my races. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that's kind of what was going on in that competitive early competitive range of the, the sport. But Carl had this succeed, the succeed capsules and drink um, that were the first ones to kind of advertise in, in ultra running magazine. But from you know, a shoe perspective, we were the ones paying some attention to the sport outside of Ann and, and some some Nike attention that she got, of course. And um, in Rockport with the Tara Humarans, and yep. Rockport wasn't hard to, you know, they were, that was, <laughs> yeah, that that was quite was the, uh, the bar was set quite low on that one. Yeah, quite low. And um, like with Tim, you know, he just loved the interaction with the development of the product and loved to engage with a brand and, and, um, you know, 
every time I'd be in California, he'd want to go for a run and discuss shoe technology. And, and so that was Tim's big tie in, you know, was, was, um, yeah, just the, the ability to, you know, kind of state what he liked and have a brand listen to him and, and execute it in the next shoe that comes out. And, um, with Scott Jurek, um, I knew I had to give him, you know, I had to give him a bit more as this young guy. Um, but Patagonia came on board and we were able to create a bit, a little bit of a budget. So it was clothing and it was shoes. And then what I would do is would get, um, Scott into a race, like it way too cool. Greg Sodder would say, sure, I'll, I'll give him an entry, bring him along. And we'd go like, literally we were boiling potatoes in Greg's garage running the race, setting up a tent. And then at the end of the finish line, we're handing out water bottles that had the logo way too cool. That was given to me by Dana from ultimate direction. And I'd literally like pay for Scott's travel, which was sleeping in the dirt the whole time. Yeah. We didn't find that. Uh -huh. I'd pick him up and pay for his food and he'd help me promote the shoes. And, um, and with Ben, we actually did give him, you know, a stipend. Um, he actually got some money with his one sport contract, but was the only one at the time. Um, and then I started to formalize a little bit of a, of a financial budget for Scott in Luann Park and maybe like three or four others um, that came from me and Patagonia. Um, and then um, it was kind of neat because then after the trade, the, the sport started to really pick up some steam and other brands started to give it some recognition. ACG had came up with a team in North Face. Like, really, it was me and Scott out there. Then all of a sudden, there was Dean and Topher showing up at races <laughs> together promoting the North Face, which was kind of cool, you know, and um, getting to know those guys at that, um, you know, kind of as brothers in arms, so to speak. And then Vast came out with a team. And this money kind of came into the sport. And Montreal Sales just kind of built right underneath it. Because my whole concept with the team was this is a way we can um, generate a lifestyle and, like you said, this camaraderie and get this commitment with people with our, you know, personal support, my personal support, pacing them and helping them travel and getting them into races and helping race directors uh, mark course and get prizes and things like that. Um and at the time, that was enough to make a big mm -hmm. impact. Um, and with with Montreal um, and Patagonia together, in speaking of Nancy Hobbs, I got involved with USATF, and I was able to come up with a bit of a prize package for the first national championships, which was out at Kettle Moraine, and then took it over as national championships at White River in 1999 and actually had a $10,000 prize purse. Mm -hmm. which was the first notable yeah. prize money event in 99 at White River with $10,000 in prize money and um, place to stay and all that kind of stuff. And so um, I think people really appreciated my personal commitment to the sport, the brand, the individual. Mm -hmm. um, and then we were able to bring in some small things, travel and, shoes and gear. Um, and then pretty soon, um, you know, as the Montreal, then Seattle running company person helping to develop the, 
the interaction within USA track and field um, in helping to come up with selection processes for national events that then would have prize money. And so we brought, you know, a fair amount to the table um, in that 98, 99, 2000 timeframe, um, just from an organizational perspective as well. Um, and a lot of it was my own personal work, but then it was Montreal's willingness and the culture there at Montreal that really helped um, support that. And then you team up with Jeannie Wall at Patagonia. And at the time it was uh, a Dana Miller at Ultimate Direction. And, you know, we could kind of get together a little package for athletes and, and expand our support. And it's cool in terms of, I think, what you were able to do and in terms of, so you mentioned like uh, Tim would weigh in on maybe like shoe design. And I still, it's kind of funny to think back. I remember th um, thinking of what technology to bring in and some of those early models. And I, I've tried hard. I've tried to scour, like I found some like just retro um, shoes just to have back here when I started doing more like shoe reviews or whatever, like, and like a, like a first generation, like Adidas marathon, like TR and like some of the yeah. early ones. And I, I tried to find, something from one sport i tried to find something in some some of the early montreal models and i just came up short um and i don't have any of those unfortunately still around but i remember i remember thinking the hard rock was so such a cool shoe when it came out but like in hindsight i think it was probably like a brick in terms of like you know comparing it to like today's standard so that wasn't my shoe <laughs> yeah i knew had even i remember was it the leona divide maybe had a little bit more light yeah. flex to it and then they started yeah. getting lighter and more minimal or, or whatever but all that's to say when you were creating these models, it's cool that um, you all as a brand were able to represent and tie together um, really the full U.S. trail space at that point in terms of what you were just naming the shoes. Uh, yeah, with no, the so those, those, you know, um, the names of the shoes were events that I had yeah. approached and made a relationship with. Um, and um, so we started the, the, the uh, events that were showing us the most support in the beginning were the ones that we were naming, you know, the shoes after the Diaz Vista preceded the hard rock. And that was, you know, the Diaz Vista was the 50 K up in, in Vancouver, BC that that was like the second or third race I had run. And so that was cool support up there. And we got to know the Canadian distributors and get some Canadian athletes on board and the mountain masochist, of course, through the connection I made with, with David Horton at the time. And, um, the Leona divide, um, um, that was one that Ben Hyen had me and Dave Terry come out to, and we got to know Beverly Kimberly really well. And, and, uh, Hal, um, what was Hal's, um, ah, space and Hal's last name, but he was, uh, Kerner, was, you mean? no, not Hal Kerner. Oh, no, no. Um, oh, sorry. The race director at Leona Divide, who oh, had originally been involved in um, um, the Angeles Crest race, and so you know, then we named that next shoe after after the Leona Divide event because they were super supportive of the brand, and um, and so that was that was neat. You know that that helped bring some kind of pride to a certain shoe, totally um, from the regional the regional um, space, and we used those folks in that support to open running shoe stores, you mm -hmm. know, on trail. And that's how it went. You know, I um, created a demand and then the, the stores fell into place after that. But um, the main thing, you know, with the technology, I mean, the Vitesse preceded all of those. And if, if you go to 94 or 95, when the Vitesse was 
the one sport shoe coming in onto the market. It was completely what I was looking for is this, which was a shoe that weighed, you know, 10 ounces or less had good cushioning was using EVA, but we use this um, TPU or polyurethane protection plate that kept, mm-hmm. you know, the deflected sharp stuff from coming up and bruising the foot, which nobody else had a protection plate at that time, unless it was a hiking shoe. And then a little bit of a polycarbonate toe box. So it kept you from stubbing your toes. And then a little bit of an outrigger, kind of the foam piece kind of was a little bit of an outrigger laterally, which made the shoe super stable. And I used to grind that thing a little bit of an angle so it would hold on a side hill for me and keep me on a more neutral plane. Um, And then a super hydrophobic upper that just dispelled all the water when you went in and out of a creek. And the other shoes had a lot of foam in them. They didn't have the protection in them. Um, You know, Adidas had the response trail at the time. Asics had an attempt, was had a, a trail running shoe out there, but with the protection that combined the hydrophobicness, the uh, stability underfoot, particularly laterally, that Vitesse was pretty revolutionary. And you'd look at it now and think, yeah, but well, at the time, right? No, it even had the- notches in the in the protection plate at the med heads, you know, Scott Tucker was a very smart production manager and went on to, um, to run the Scott shoe mm-hmm. division and then got hired away to Pearl Azumi opening the door for me to go into Scott there. But Scott Tucker was the president and the production manager at Montreal at the time that the test came out and um, still is designing shoes to this day. And so, um, and uh, so it was kind of neat to see him, you know, break on at that level and then continue his kind of foyer into the runner's running world as well. But yeah, this was pretty, pretty, um, there wasn't another shoe like it at the time. And, um, I would say the next closest shoe came with the melee and the Leona divide out of, out of Montreal which were still runnable and light, not the hard rock. The hard rock to me was more of a hiking shoe or a, um, or a hard rock shoe. Which I get right, <laughs> fit hard with hard rock, right? I mean, it was, was right. That was yeah. kind of the idea with it. And, um, and, and then, of course, you know, other brands started paying attention. And I, at Seattle Running Company, was involved with several other shoes for other brands. I was, it was me and Trip Allen sitting in the back room at Seattle Running Company that came up with the, rounded heel on the Cascadia and the pivot, the pivot posting uh-huh. on the original Cascadia. That was myself and, and, uh, Trip Allen, who was the, uh, future, um, concept designer at, at Brooks at the time. And, um, and then I also worked with ASICS and me and Terry shallow designed the trail attack, which is their, you know, kind of taking a cross country shoe into the 50 K world. And, um, and so other brands started to pay attention and actually came and sought me out a little bit to, to kind of get some input on what they should do to make a true trail running shoe. And particularly the Cascadia was quite a successful shoe mm-hmm. um, and competed um, really, you know, that ACG um, vast started making some really good shoes. Um, but it was, you know, that was five, what, four or five years after the Vitesse. That. And it's interesting, even in that time that you were still making the shoes, though, that your athletes and people at large would run in, right? It was kind of the, the joke early on and on how long it lasted that you had, 
some of the players like North Face, once they, they would enter into the space, they were making footwear, but it was like the what was it like in the contract where their athletes didn't even have to like race in their shoes just because they I don't know, the shoes maybe weren't that good. And I don't think I necessarily I may have owned a pair like early on. Um, but they just weren't quite at the same level. I don't think I was necessarily I don't remember if I had a pair of trail attacks early on. Um, but you were making right shoes that actually people wanted to run in and they felt felt yeah. fairly uh advanced. I think there's an early pair of um uh the uh, Cascadia's, I, I think, down here. That's the one right there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, See that little so, red piece. Yep. So it was kind of that one. And then the red piece on the other side, on the inside, mm -hmm. too. Those are the pivot posts. And um, so um, Platya and Halberstadt at Boulder Running Company at the time, they were insisting to Brooks that trail running shoes should be medially posted. And me and Scott Jurek over at Seattle Running Company, with they were Boulder Running Company, we were Seattle Running Company. We're telling Brooks, no, they got to be neutral. If it if it's harder on the inside, softer on the outside, it's going to laterally release. You can't hammer it. And so because of those two meetings, Trip Allen had the meeting with, with Johnny Halberstadt at Boulder Running Company. And then with me and Scott, him and I sat there and came up with the idea, well, let's do a post, but let's make it neutrally posted. So you have the support in both directions. And then actually Boulder Running Company liked the idea of the Cascadia and like that. And so um, it was uh, interesting to see how, you know, how the other brands took the information and, and moved the technology forward. Like the Cascadia, the rounded heel and that mm -hmm. pivot post, you know, that moved the technology forward as far as um is as far as the the product on on our feet there so and so you have reference <clears throat> seattle running company there a bit so let's let's go there so seattle running i can't remember did you was that a fleet feet before it was you a foot well? zone it was a foot zone that was yep. it yep. it was a foot zone and they had nine stores in the northwest one in bend one in seattle a couple in bellevue and kirkland and um, and at the time I was selling Montrail to the, uh, the foot zone stores and, um, I was kind of looking for, I don't know, I, I was looking for a better way to even have a tighter community. And, um, I had this huge retail background from a previous life at Nordstrom, <laughs> which, is in my wheelhouse and, and I'm mm -hmm. back doing some serious retail again now at the, at the Smiley Creek Lodge. But, um, and, um, and, you know, there was Seattle was just the prime spot for trail running for training. And um, the main reason is the year round access to big climbs and big descents. You know, you're not, you're not snowbound, you're running, you know, four mile, 3,800 foot climbs at Mount Sai from sea level up, you know? And so, and Scott Jurek and Ian Torrance and William Emerson, Brandon Sabrowski, they all knew, saw that. And they all came to work at Seattle Running Company when I opened the store. And so um, I saw the opportunity with Foot Zone due to my connection with Montrail and the Seattle store, um, was ripe for the picking. And so my wife, Leslie and I decided we would open a retail store together and, um, she was getting pretty 
well-versed in massage therapy. And um, Scott Jurek was just had finished up and was ready to move from South Dakota and, and start practicing PT and had a retail background as well. And so I jumped on that opportunity in 99 and um, pretty soon we had this great following that was moving to Seattle, showing up at the store, living in my basement, working at the store, training together. Um, I continued with Montreal for about a year for overlapping the marketing there and owning the store, but I couldn't continue that because the we started getting into uh, managing events and all sorts of stuff, which I can kind of expand on. But, um, um, and so, um, we became a really strong Montreal account, but we based our, our business off of trail running. Um, and it became kind of this spot to come. And I was getting involved with USA track and field at the time and actually became the world hundred K coach in 2003 and had, I think three or four Seattle running club members that, that went to the world hundred K um, over those years. Um, and so through that USATF piece and picking up white river 50 um, we created that national championship event and the prize money and Seattle running company. Then with the crowd that I had, you know, this group of runners that were all ex Montreal athletes, um, I started putting on events, trail running events, and um, we were probably up to about eight events at one point there, and um, which include White River 50, started this Cougar Mountain Trail Running Series, the Bridal Trails event. And so we decided, you know, we need a way to kind of manage these events in a more community way. And so we created the Seattle Running Club, which became about 320 members. And Next thing I know, we had this ultra running team. We had these events. I was taking um, uh, high school age kids to nationals for Seattle Running Company for cross country and competing in, um, in the cross country events uh, within USA track and field. We got eighth one year at, at national champion team championships with Seattle Running Club and and Seattle's still stellar in terms of the youth uh, cross country running. I mean, yeah, no doubt about really it. But, strong. but it really became this really strong community in the Seattle area in kind of a national community for trail running. Um, you know, at one point, uh, like with Chrissy, for instance, you know, we were the, the launching point of several careers as well as, you know, these people who had been on the Montreal train team coming to work and train together. How Kerner moved there. Um, I met him when he was about 19. I met Scott when he was about 20. Um, Ian took my position down at Montreal and Uli Steidel showed up and started training with Scott and Hal. And then Chrissy walked into the store looking for a summer job fresh out of college. And me and Jerk were standing there. We literally hired her in the moment uh -huh. and she became our manager at the store. And eventually after Ian left, I think two years later, maybe even th at least two years later, then Chrissy got that job down at Montreal. Um, but it took us a year and a half to get Chrissy to even go out and run with Scott and I on the trails. And then it was, it was all over. She just became, you know, um, an amazing trail runner and, and hooked on the sport and is she who she is today because of that atmosphere and that community that we had there 
you know, at the store. Uh, Which is cool. And that was going to be part of here too. The butterfly effects that spun off of um, what you had an instrumental hand in there, what coalesced there, right? I mean, yeah. what jerk would end up doing for the sport as a whole uh, as in just times performances and an ambassador uh, nationwide, some of the FKTs, what Hal would go off and do. And um, both as one of the, that generation's uh, top runners out there. And then with his own shop and his own community spinning off of that, Chrissy, who you mentioned, like there's so many, there's so many Ian, um, right. In terms of like coaching the number of, uh, individuals that he's continued to uh, have a hand in, in shaping out there. And then the communities around him, like, it's just awesome how that then kind of spread out and where that all went as tentacles, basically. Yeah. It kind of continued on after that too. Like, so Hal and I, we almost opened a store together in Kirkland and I ended up, um, and it ended up not working out. So, um, as far as, uh, opening another store in, in the Seattle area, but I had been coming back from Western States and I stayed in Ashland and I came back and I'm like, how you got to go to Ashland, dude, you got to, you can run right out of this town. It doesn't have a running shoes store there. And so how went to Ashland and opened the store. And, um, and now um, other employees I had, Eric Satz was an employee. He had the balanced athlete, which is an, uh, I don't, I think he's fleet feet now, but, um, and, um, Jonathan Bernard has Ohio, Ohio Valley running company. Now Phil Kocheck that worked for us for five years, he has seven Hills run shop and, um, who else owns a shop now that worked at the store? Well, Brian Morrison, um, mm-hmm. got put into the position sure to take over the fleet feet shops yeah. after we sold the store to fleet feet. So now Brian Morrison is also there. So, you know, we had this, I, I don't know, I must have fooled him into thinking that owning a shop was a good idea, but. Um, well, yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I guess that would be a whole you? Separate, and of course, then there's you, of course. Yeah, right? I guess it would be a whole separate tangent. I was just on the the, the periphery, I think, when I moved in there and uh, started working with a uh, friend from college uh, down at the New Balance store. But yeah. right, I think the first time I met you was at Cascade Crest, and uh, I think you were just hanging out with your, your dog at that camp. I remember whether you were working at a station or crewing. Well, I was at O'Lolly Meadows for 21, for 20 years. So I definitely was probably, I was working it for the one year I ran it. My wife did the aid station. This year, I think you were crewing. So I think I remember you, you hanging out and then Chrissy was kind of hanging out there too. And it it went from there. But so I felt like I was always on the the periphery, you know, and and I don't know, life goes the way. You were part of that crowd. You showed up and started doing the runs and, um, you know, we got to, you know, talk a bit you were down working the new balance store at seattle i remember at the seattle uh marathon expo yeah. talking to you down there and yeah totally right so i was kind of yeah. around it but yeah. it, you know of all the and who knows i mean things go the way they go but it would have been interesting to know how it would have been shaped differently if i instead of going into new balance seattle i would have gone to fleet feet or i mean uh, uh seattle running company and be like hey I, can i can i work here like a bit and you know i i don't know it was I don't know. Anyway, I would have hired you in in a heartbeat. I I appreciate it. I appreciate it. You know, who knows where life would have gone from there. Um, But it was definitely a cool time. And it was inspirational to see all that going down uh, in that uh, pod, like at the moment. um, Yeah. In that moment. Um, Yeah, it was fun. And I, you know, I definitely have fond memories of you in that time. Um, 
And it was cool when you were opening your shop and calling me up. That was great. I enjoyed those conversations. There was, uh, in some of the prior Roots um, episodes here, I had, let me see if I can actually pull it up. I was going through and looking for photos because I think it's fun to sift back through. And I actually started, I think, with maybe a couple of years, but then I abandoned it because I was just going to go some questions with you. Uh, but there was um, one here that actually, and I just thought of it because in this moment, like looking back, it seemed like such a young time, I guess, in terms of how things were were coming on. And it's just a much different world now. But like one of the photos I'll share with you here. Um, I'm going to grab a light. It's getting dark in my room. Totally. <laughs> There we go. Now you can see me again. So was that photo there, um, which I think <laughs> just speaks to, you know, it was just, it was a younger time and it was still so much that would come like after those years. And there's so, and that just kind of speaks to kind of that, that pod, but looking at that, it probably, I imagine it brings back a lot of those memories for you. Yeah. That's my Euro van in the back background there, which, a lot of people rode in to go to trail runs over the years. And of course that's at the start and finish line at white river 50. Um, and I'm trying to think, I'm trying to think if that preceded those guys moving to Seattle. Um, this was, no, I, tagged no. this, I tagged it as 2003. I'm not sure whether yeah. that was accurate or not, but no, Ian was, yeah. How was both Hal and Scott were at Seattle running company at the time. Ian, I think was down at Montreal and Godale. Um, um, I got to know him a little bit through the world hundred K team and the USATF stuff. Cause he was a big advocate for, for um, integrating ultra running and USA track and field for, cause he was always on the world hundred K team at, the, um, at that time. And was one of the guys that we always brought out to white river. And yeah, that's, that's classic um what it was like most days at seattle running company right there <laughs> which is awesome so it is fun to think back and i think very affectionately even if i was on that uh <clears throat> only on the, the periphery um the <clears throat> let me get back here to the uh the note so the so i guess there taking us there to white river 50 White River 50, I couldn't remember you, whether you had started that one or, or took it over, um, but it was going ahead of you, and then you moved in as RD on that one? Yeah, so, yeah, Chris Ralph started the race, I think, in it, – it, there was actually um, – yeah, I believe in 93, I think, was the first year that, that um, White River was run, and then I ran it in 90 – ran it. Um, yeah. in 95 when I was the one sport rep with, with Dave and Paul Terry. And, um, and then, um, and then I got involved in one of the aid stations for a couple of years at, um, helping Chris out. And then 
when in 99, right after we opened Seattle Running Company, she's like, this event needs, it needs you. <laughs> it needs, it needs to move to this next level. And I want you to take it over. And, and, um, so that was immediately, um, I utilized those inroads at USA track and field and, and, um, the support with Patagonia and, some other brands and was able to come up with the prize money and really create a legitimate um, national championship event with, with um, a friend of mine, Charlie at a video company. And um, we made it onto a, a late night Fox sports show called marathons and beyond. I think it was related to that magazine what kind of crazy show is that on fox they need to- it was on yeah and it was huh. on yeah it was uh, it, the two years the first two years um huh. we sold uh video footage that was aired on fox sports marathons plus i think was the show um and i was able to house all those people and bring all those people together um in 99 so that's the year i took it that my wife and i took it over leslie and i took it over um and it went from i think 64 participants the year previous to like 184 that first year which was a pretty big number at the time yeah for the trail scene especially for 50 miles yeah and then we we kind of settled in at at um you know we kind of hit this point before uh james took it over where we were almost at 400 runners and um um, and it became one of the oldest classic still is events uh-huh. in the country for sure. It was one of the original, like small handful of races out there, you know, that at the time, and even in 95, it was, there weren't a whole lot of other races to choose from necessarily, you know, around the. And that became a model. I know for me, that became my model for Cayuga trails, um, emulating the experience and going after the national championship and looking at what your, your purse was and whether it was okay to apply if, if Scott were still wanting to hang on to the championship. And I'm sure for other people as well, I'm guessing, uh, to a certain extent, uh, was it Hal created uh Siskiyou Outback or he took that over? Yeah. Was that, I can't remember where yeah. that was already going. Um, but I imagine you could follow also your, your model there that was then emulated because that was it, it was melding the kind of this classic ultra space with the uh, evolution of the sport in some high powered runners, some purses, the com- competition value, these beautiful courses. Like there was so much that came together um, in that one. And yes, there were for sure classics, other classics out there going as well. But that was for sure one that was one of the signature events. Yeah. And, and you know, it's, it's neat to see both. It was neat to see both you and Hal, um, not just simulating maybe White River at your events, but with our communities and the way we interacted with our communities through the stores. Because, mm-hmm. you know, Hal was at Seattle Running Company and he was always out there huffing it and helping me put event, events on. Um, and you saw that happening at Seattle Running Company where we started putting mm-hmm. these trail running events and these Sunday runs and taking people out to the mountains and, you know, and, um, um, so it was cool to see both you guys creating those communities, which was similar to what, what we had been doing. Um, and that, you know, that in and of itself is, is such good, healthy growth for the sport of trail running. Um, because it just builds these strong bonds in our, in our communities and a place for people to come and learn and, um, experience the sport. And, um, 
so that that's that's a really that's a really cool thing to see with you guys um, so let's jump there was um the scott sports um uh, to one of the next one of your next chapters uh and this yeah. was you're on and off a little bit with uh scott uh and you had mentioned how you uh wove in uh on the heels of scott uh tucker when he went over to uh pearl and i remember meeting with scott too and he was with with pearl at like one of the events or whatever and um so scott sports um uh, sorry, I can get my bearings here. On and off part of your career, yeah, tying in Scott Tucker of the Montreal years, uh, one which you had a really active hand in, but with your hands, I think, think a bit tied in terms of how much you were really able to do uh, with Scott Sports. Uh, where and what do you see as a relative downfall of Montreal um, around uh, in those years? And what would those changes of constraints, constraints speak to uh, some of the difficulties that you were also having with Scott? Like, I guess, how did the... How are the foot brands, uh, footwear brands changing? Like where did uh, Montreal go in those years and where, what were your challenges with Scott sports where you had maybe a certain vision and what you could have done with it uh, if you could have done with it? Yeah. And you know, I, th I think it has a lot to do with commitment and passion um, and the lack thereof. Um, not in my case, but mm -hmm. you know, and not in Scott Tucker's case with Montreal and whatnot, but in Columbia's case, um, you know, Scott Tucker did go to Columbia from Mont when they sold, when Montreal sold to Columbia as the production manager. And I remember him telling me that, you know, the volume of some of the Colombian shoes were more than the whole Montreal brand in one single model that was going to the Walmart store and that kind of stuff. And he would bring these new design ideas to, to, you know, someone who could do the drawings of the, of the shoes and stuff like that. And he would get so put for, so far down underneath this pile of crappy shoes that generated so much more money that it became super frustrating to him. And, um, and so that's where, you know, I think, and then Scott Tucker left the, the Columbia Montreal brand and um, then all the, the compassion and commitment was gone mm -hmm. when Tucker left um, it, it got a little bit of a boost back when Topher came back into the, into the scene. Cause Topher's, you know, he had put yeah, his passion and his yep. commitment into the North face programs. And yeah, I know you had to run on their shoes, but they're a clothing brand. They're a really strong clothing brand. Their clothes are, they got great stuff. And that was, you know, what, what I think was there. Of course they wanted to have good, you know, Topher wanted to have good shoes, but again, he's one guy in this pool of, people that um, where there's so much more dollars going into these other categories for them that they weren't putting that commitment and passion into the development of the shoes, but they were in the clothing. And, um, and so when Topher came back into Montreal, there was a little bit of a boost again there. Um, um, I think, but at the same time, it was still kind of buried under these other pages, so to speak within the Columbia world. Um, and, you know, and then they folded the brand and then they weren't going to fold the brand. And then it became Montreal Columbia to try to boost the Columbia names, technical prowess. And so things got a little mucked up and lost in the translation. Um, and it's got sports, you know, I mean, um, the main governing body or the owner of Scott is in Switzerland and they're the number two bike brand over there. 
um, their ski business is off the charts over there. And um, in the U.S., they were a, mainly a ski pole and goggle brand. They brought the aluminum ski pole to the world market and their ski business was driving the business and bike was um, actually a bigger volume in the U.S., but not quite like um, in Switzerland. And Larry, who brought me on, was pretty committed to the shoes. And they had this geometry that was just amazing. You put the shoe on and you ran in it and you could feel the smooth accelerated transition of the geometry of the brand. And from a pure running standpoint, they totally had something there. And um, what happened was they um, brought in a bike guy to run what was a ski company that had been in 19 in Sun Valley since 1956. And this bike guy from Specialized moved the brand to Salt Lake City. So it lost its heritage. It lost its roots. He wanted to focus on bike and shoes weren't in his original plan. And so um, the people making the decisions didn't have that passion and commitment to the footwear, regardless of how good the geometry and the technology was. And at first, I mean, the first few years after I moved to Ketchum in the Sun Valley area, I was working for Scott with the support that Eric, that Larry was giving me. And I was jointly promoting at the Hawaii Ironman because that's what it was. It was a mm -hmm. it was geometry that was meant to race triathlons on tired legs, you know? And um, so we had great impacts within that triathlon world and huge impact at the Hawaii Ironman. And then when they changed direction in who was running the U.S. operations and the commitment went to bike and they left the mountains, although Salt Lake, some people will say is the mountains, but not compared to where I'm at. Yeah. Um, and so they kind of lost that commitment and passion. And I had 93 active accounts, including Roadrunner Sports, REI, um, and a bunch of specialty accounts, um, including you. And um, they they basically kind of in a way talked me into becoming a rep again. And um, a year later, the guy, in, the owner in Switzerland, Bayot, um, kind of put me back in and there was only 12 accounts left out of 93, like two years later. Um, and I was at that point, I was fighting a losing battle with Scott from mm -hmm. a business standpoint, not from a technology standpoint at all. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and uh, the development went away from the guys in Portland who developed the technology, the geometry, had the ties into Biomechanica that um, did the geometry on the sub two shoe for Nike, which was actually Simon who did the original work. Um, he's involved with Biomechanica on that geometry in that original um, T2 and Polani, um, which I think carried over into that the geometry in that, that shoe. Yeah. Um, but coming back into it, I was kind of plugged into a position and I was the one man, the one man show. I was the marketing director, the sales manager, the, um, I swept the floors and cleaned the bathrooms too. So, um, and after about three years of kind of making a run, at that. Him, yep. then I decided, you know what? it's just kind of fighting a losing battle. Um, but I mean, the technology was there. I reopened REI. I opened REI three times in Roadrunner Sports, <laughs> three times, including just recently with Roadrunner Sports for them again with 
they re they're reintroducing in the u.s again now um with uh you know similar technology to what you've just seen recently but so what's so when i think of the then brands and putting this together again where we've come from where we're at now where things could go from here uh one sport um then transitioning into montreal was really making it in a much smaller uh, community space at that point and with a dedicated trail brand. Uh, and now it's a much bigger market, uh, but you see brands that, I guess, to a certain extent, try, like you look at Salmon, for example. Salmon, I don't know how much money they pumped into trying to make their brand uh, really viable in the U.S. market. And I totally appreciate their support. They were everywhere, pervasive, uh, supporting events, uh, trying to support retailers, but they just couldn't really get off the ground. So now they're, I think, waffling and trying to move forward into this maybe um, uh, based on like road shoes and decreasing their focus as just like a trail brand. Why do you think, it, and, and granted, there's so many more brands that are doing uh, decent trail shoes now, like every brand has a lineup of trail shoes. So I'm going to guess maybe that's the answer is there's so many more brands with so many more, there's just so much more competition uh, but do you think it's just not viable or in the case of like Salmon playing it out where it's just not viable to make it even in a much bigger community as just a trail brand? Well, you know, I think um, there's economies of scale, of course, and, and return on your investment, which was a big thing with Scott. I mean, with the amount of bike business they're doing, you know, every dollar they didn't put into bike, you know, they went mm-hmm. into shoe was 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 not going into where their bread and butter was, which was bike and ski. And so they would kind of pull back on it. And then they'd say, well, Europe's doing it okay. And and they're doing okay with it. Let's try it a little bit again. And, and it would kind of spit and sputter. And then they'd pull back again a little bit. And um, I think with Solomon, I mean, um, they have some big categories of sales, you know, they're, they're real big in the ski world and the Nordic world. And, and again, like with Scott, I mean, um, Europe is a big market for them and now there's China. And so the U S becomes a little less important for where they direct, you know, a lot of their support. And, um, I think Solomon has a lot of worldwide business going on outside of the trail running side of things, um, that create a lot of volume for them, soft goods and, and their ski categories. And uh, so then they'll pull back their marketing a little bit. They'll look at, you know, what can we do to actually make this a more viable, higher volume percentage of contribution to sales within our mix of the brand. And, um, and, and so these bigger companies like that, that have all these other categories, they, I think they struggle when they see the volume that a Nike is doing in the road range and think that, you know, we should be doing that kind of volume, but it just, it wasn't there originally in trail running because it was a small sport for those bigger brands, but now there's so much more competition with Hoka and ultra and, and these other brands that also have a lot of marketing prowess that the slice of the pie is split up again. Um, so you haven't seen this huge increase in return on your investment for a brand like Solomon. And so then they start looking to the road market where there's a lot more customers to grab. Um, but it's also a lot more expensive and a lot harder to break into. Um, when, with Montrail, um, trail running was the bigger category. 
So they were a hiking brand that was just doing like, you know, 3.2 million in hiking sales or whatever is one sport. And all of a sudden trail running took off and it became their higher volume category than their hiking shoes. And so the commitment and the compassion all went just into that developing the trail aspect. It wasn't diluted into other categories that created higher volume of sales for them. Is that mm-hmm. making yeah. sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It's just like, I remember it was a battle to get the Cascadia going with Brooks because they're making so much money with the beast and the adrenaline. Well, it's it's still they, a battle, I think, with, um, it is. Oh, with Brooks. I mean, it's such a big company. You've been the number one player in at least the run specialty uh, market uh, for so long. Such a big space. They're so capable. But even, I think, uh, caught up with Adam Chase by phone I don't know, a few weeks or a month or so ago or whatever. Oh, um, stop real quick. Do yeah, totally. Adam, Adam Chase was one of my one sport athletes. Oh, no. Yeah. He was one of the earliest members. Him and Dave Mackey were my Colorado along with Kirk Apt. And they all, those three were one sport athletes and continue on as Montreal athletes. Just a side note. And he's one that's also been all over kind of the, the history of these communities as well. Like kind of there, there's Adam chase or there's Adam chase. Yeah. Um, he's woven everywhere. Really cool. Yeah. Um, but working in the work that he's doing, the association that he has with Brooks, you know, just seeing if, if they'd like to, you know, for instance, come on and support, uh, uh, white as being the U S mountain run championships this year, which I was grateful for your support and Scott's support, uh, in the years, yeah. uh, that you were able to, and in Cayuga, uh, but for being such a, um, the brand size that they are, and I feel rather capable of, I feel like they've been very still gun shy, like in the trail space, they have the, the catamount, which I really liked in the newer trail shoe, but the Cascadia now is just kind of a, which I'm actually wearing my foot right now um, is uh, comparatively speaking, kind of a, kind of a chunky shoe at this point. And is, you know, it's, and so it's interesting to see such a big brand that's still in that Northwest. It would be in a hotbed, still not be willing to commit the resources into really giving a go what the trail space would could do i guess yeah you know they with seattle running club and brooks being right there and jerk you know when when trip and i were working on the cascadia i said when you get this shoe to come out i know scott jerk is you know his his contract at Montreal's coming up here soon. i said you really need scott jerk to be a spokesperson for the shoe and you gotta toe the line and I, and he did, and he got them. And then Scott was able to make an impact at Brooks because he would put so much commitment into what he did there. Mm-hmm. And, um, so it was a challenge to get Brooks to put money into getting Scott on the Cascadia and promoting that shoe. Um, but it was super successful and Scott, I'm not sure if he's working with Brooks anymore, but he did for years. And, um, uh, but again, it was that challenge and, Brooks supported Seattle Running Club in our store too, and they gave us way more stuff for our cross country and road running team. They uh-huh. outfitted a team of 24 runners, gave me shirts for all my events, um, gave travel money to people who would make national teams from a road perspective, but not on that trail side, even though we were that trail running store. And so that right there, you know, with my top brand, Brooks. Like I said, they would throw all sorts of road running support um, into our club and in what we were doing, um, but not nearly as much, except for Scott. 
um, into the trail side of it with us. I think that's so intriguing. It would I be a brand that would be so capable. Yeah, I can never get them on board for White River 50 and stuff as a sponsor, but to get a whole bunch of money for 24 people for cross-country nationals and stuff, they were all in. No problem. So it, was, it was interesting uh, from that perspective. Um, I think uh, Chase is trying to put on with them a uh, trail event in the Seattle area, I think, this next year. And I think that's whatever resources they uh, have, um, for the most part, I think they're putting it into to that event. Um, uh, so I think Chase is eating it all up. Um, but in any case, all right. So, all right, we'll, we'll try to get, um, in a wind down, uh, pattern okay. here. The, um, you're an integral part of trail running uh, community and brands in the U S for over two decades. And it was no doubt consuming. Uh, I mean, you were firing on all, uh, fronts. You were everywhere in the space. Uh, how's it feel to be a year into a new chapter, which is the Smiley Creek Lodge and tell us a bit about the lodge and uh, what you got going on. Yeah, I mean, this area, Sun Valley, Ketchum, Sawtooth, White Clouds, Pioneers, the headwaters of the salmon. It, if you've been here, you know it, it's, it'll blow your mind. It's one of the most understated, undervalued, most intense mountainous environments you can find anywhere. And the way the air smells and everything, it's just... It's amazing. And Sun Valley, as um, I mean, my life, despite the trail running world, um, always revolved around skiing and ski racing. And then back then I started backcountry skiing, tying my skiing and my trail running together um, and just going into these remote places. But ever since fourth grade, I, you know, the, the, the history of skiing in Sun Valley is huge. Um, first destination resort in 1930s, first backcountry hut um, built in 1934 in the Pioneer, um, the Pioneer cabin. The first chairlift in the world was developed here. And um, I, I, since fourth grade, when my parents brought me here and, and bought a condo here with three other families, I always wanted to live here. I would kick and scream and cry every time we went back to Seattle. And um you know, even at Seattle Running Company, part of the our club was a city league ski racing team. And I had like three X World Cup ski racers and Wednesday night at Alpental, Seattle Running Company ski team, you know. And um, but when Scott Tucker said he had moved here with his son for Nordic Nordic training and was working with Scott Sports in the shoes, you know, I Im- immediately kind of attached myself to being the rep because we were selling the store. And, um, then the opportunity for me to actually get moved to my childhood dream, um, by a company that made, was making shoes and was a ski company was, was a dream. It was winning the lottery, you know, and, um, and it was great because I avoided working in the ski industries until the last two years. And I was working which allowed me to ski in the ski season. As soon as I started working in the ski industry, my skiing started to go back down again. Uh, uh-huh. But um, and then after I finished up with Scott Sports, I started to work a couple of retail jobs. Um, I was still putting on White River, and I started working with a local dirt bike event here. Um, and then two friends of mine who are world famous guides were World Cup ski racers, won the X Games in the uh, 
uh, in the skier cross three years in a row. Their names are Zach and Reggie Christ. Um, Zach owns Sun Valley Guides and, and Reggie does helicopter guiding all over the world um, and became really close friends of mine um, through skiing. Um, they ended up buying um, this place called Smiley Creek Lodge. It's um, 42 miles from Sun Valley, 28 miles from Stanley, right at the headwaters of the Salmon River. And the Salmon River is, I believe, um, the last under, uninterrupted natural flow of river in, in, in the United States outside of Alaska. Um, and Smiley Creek Lodge sits right where these three big lakes that feed the Salmon River, um, Redfish, Alturas, and Pettit. And it's this funky old lodge. It's been there since the seventies that has an RV park. It has a, teep, a couple of teepees, a couple of yurts, a couple of tents, um, and a couple cabins and this really rustic old lodge. And they do snowmobiles in the winter time. Um, it's surrounded by the sawtooth, the smokies, the boulders and the white clouds. And then the headwaters of the Salmon River spilling out into some of the best river rafting in the world um, down the Middle Fork and Salmon. And so Reggie and Zach bought this out of a labor of love and then hired me to run it because I had the retail background. Um, I have the backcountry background. I've worked with guides over the years and the backcountry skiing. I know the area really well. Um, but all of a sudden, I'm an underground tank storage facility certified specialist at a gas station and I'm running a restaurant and I'm fixing RV hookups and um and then we've got a retail store so we got a full service restaurant a retail store gas pumps small grocery with a parlor in the parlor will pump out 200 plus milkshakes on a Saturday in July and then we have um we're doing a remodel to the RV site which was 17 RV sites we're going to turn it into 10 and we're bringing in these mobile tiny home units that'll allow us to have year round rentals um, in seven of the RV sites. Um, and then the snowmobile thing. Um, I've always been a silent traveler through the mountains and all of a sudden I'm uh, loving the snowmobile. I saw one of your posts recently. Uh -huh. Yeah. This huge snowmobile uh, business <laughs> with 26 snowmobiles and five guides and, um the lodge and it's it's a cool experience it suits my 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 have to do 10 things at a time kind of demeanor really well um, uh -huh. and uh so yeah <laughs> it's kind of a neat place it'd be a really cool place to have uh some trail running stuff go on too i was just gonna say i mean you've got i mean that was such a huge part of you for so long there's got to be some part of you that's thinking i could probably put on a 50 mile from here or 50k or 100 mile or something out of the smiley creek lodge you know i've got some routes that i've already over the years of you know 100 miler in the piles which i think actually um ben who puts on stan hope 60k has got a 100 mile course in the pioneer range now that he's started this last year um but it would be an amazing destination travel spot for trail runners the best uh -huh. use of that space up there would be you know having the uh the accommodations and the lodge and running right out of the lodge and the lakes it'd be the perfect place for you know clinics or a 
destination kind of travel trail running kind of scenario um events maybe but uh, you know i kind of gotten out of the event scene um with yeah. james taking over white river two years ago um but yeah who knows um and the fact that i'm so entrenched in this ski world now and whatnot it it's it's doing it for me pretty good i uh-huh I can survive either in the ski ski world or the trail running world. They both make me really happy. So, well, that's good. That's good to hear. When you said in uh, maybe your one of your texts or messages that you're just working your butt off, it's good that you're so consumed and in a happy place and some place that you had always wanted to uh, to be uh, physically. Yeah. And I'm guessing your family is uh, doing pretty well and stoked out there as well. Hopefully, they are. Yeah, they are. The only downside is I'm not dealing with designing footwear anymore so well i, 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 don't know. I do like shoes <laughs> you never know, never know what will come i mean maybe that could still be hashed out what and and you're again such a foundational figure like in the space and such a person that's connected to so many i mean i guess even if it would just sound fun even if it's not in the context of a formal event dude why don't you just like put out invites like we're having a um, anybody connected in this Seattle running company, whatever, just come on back in, uh, this weekend at the Smiley Creek Lodge and just meet for this kind of old school rendezvous of just friends and hanging out or running or whatever. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah, that's you know. a great idea. I kind of have a little bit of the same vision. I was thinking we could even have the trail running film festival, do outdoor movies in the RV park for, uh, yeah. for a fall get together or. Yeah. yeah. And maybe that would be a whole lot less, you know, because as we both know, putting on an event is just wicked stressful and it's draining and it's, you know, it's uh, it's cool, though. Right. It is. all oh, right. There's still so many positive angles to it, but it's it's a lot and it's stressful. And if you're in a good spot, you're yeah. dealing with so many things. But you know, just putting on basically like a larger party of friends or, you know, watching some films or whatever, you know, maybe yeah. that kind of meets in the middle. And if I can uh you know if i see somebody else post on when they're going there and i hop on that train dude i'd i'd go out there and, and join that you'll get the invite don't worry good um <laughs> anything else that would be fun to mention that maybe we didn't get into while i've got you on the uh, on the hook here for talking about uh where we've come from and or, or kind of any visions on on where things are headed if if you want to weigh in there and it's okay if not um I don't know. I haven't, I haven't really thought about, you know, the, I haven't been to a running event for a long time and, um, you know, it's probably been, it's probably been three years since I was running the Stan Hope here and bringing Scott shoes up to give away. And, um, but it, it still feels the same in, in, in a lot of ways. I mean, um, the, the trail running community has such a good core values and appreciation for the outdoors for the most part, even though it's grown. Um, um, there's, it just seems it's almost overwhelming how many events there are out there. It almost makes my head spin. Huge. Now. Yeah. Yeah. And it's kind of funny just to meet some young and, and I have been, you know, with the Scott scene, I've been involved with Morgan Aratola and, and, and Cody Lind, you know, some of the, the really strong current racers and whatnot. So I've still been had a hand in, in supporting, you know, Joe, I guess Joe Gray is getting older now, but mm -hmm. Joe and Sage but Canadian still. and those guys, um, 
you know, that was my last generation of actually supporting athletes um, through Scott Sports. And that that's one of my favorite parts. I'd say that's one of the things I miss the most is, is working with athletes, supporting them, running with them, you know, testing shoes and applying, you know, taking their input and actually doing something with it. And um, that's probably one of the things I'd I really enjoyed the most was working with, with athletes and runners. And, um, so I don't, I don't know if that, that doesn't really answer your question, right. so to speak, but, um, um, yeah, you know, yeah, right on. <laughs> All right. Well, it is uh, so good to hear your, um, hear your voice. It's good to see your face. I'm glad that you are totally consumed and doing well, and it would be awesome uh, to get out there and see your, uh, your new life uh, at this point, it's somewhere or uh, somehow twist your arm. And if you're ever coming this way to uh, reconnect as well. I, I will be actually, my son's going to St. Lawrence. Oh, is he really? Yeah. So I was there visiting the school, but I'll, I'll be out your way. I'll call you next time I come. St. Lawrence. Why yeah. St. Lawrence? What's he do? What's he doing in St. Lawrence? Um, a lot of it has to do with their outdoor leadership programs. Okay. He's really big into guiding and backcountry skiing and ski racing. They have a, a big ski racing program and um, you can spend a semester living off the grid in a yurt in the Adirondacks, you know, studying uh, environmental science. And Uh uh, a lot of it has to do with their outdoor leadership programs there. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Maybe one of these years when you're, you're coming out or if you ever make the trip out to scoop them back up after the semester, I just bought some land last year. Um, last fall up on an island in the St. Lawrence River. So oh, in that general neck of the woods, um, and it'll still take some time to uh, to build something out, but it would, uh, I don't know, there's an excuse that's regionally appropriate that I can have yeah. uh, you guys out and we'll take you out on the boat in the river and, I don't know, run on the island and just enjoy a day or so. Yeah, well, it'll be his freshman year. I'll be there in August. I'll give you a shout. Sweet. We should have, hopefully we'll have a dock, uh, hopefully built by uh, August. So that may actually work. Sure. Good. Yeah. Right on, man. All right. Well, until that time, yeah, man, it was really wonderful to connect. So thanks for carving out some time. Yeah. It was good to catch up. All right, dude. I'll talk to you later. All right. Talk to you later. So for all those that hung with us for another round of TC live, I go long. So thanks for uh, being in the mix. Uh, Scott, I was really excited to connect with. He is so instrumental in uh, where the trail and ultra space came from. For those who are watching this, maybe posthumously, uh, thanks for taking it in. Um, I forget who I'm on with next week for TC Live. Uh, somebody, I think I still have uh, Yassine uh, Daboon, um, maybe the last one in the Root series, uh, but I will look forward to that. So until that time, until I tech, check in with you uh, next weekend, thank you for all uh, the support uh, out there, and I will catch you next round. All right, till then, see you.